Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, and welcome to a Tuesday from Jerusalem. 
It is Rosh Chodesh morning, the first day of Rosh Chodesh Mar Cheshvan. Tuesday morning for us, it's just after 1 p.m. in the afternoon here in Yerushalayim. Broadcasting from the uh, Lieben Presidential Suite balcony at the beautiful Inbal Hotel here in Jerusalem, which always serves as our, as our headquarters when we're in Yerushalayim. Joined by many distinguished people, including the chairman of the Jewish Unity Initiative, Mr. Simon Jacob, who's visiting us this morning and observing the uh, broadcast. And um, today we get an opportunity to meet, uh, meet more unique and interesting people, including John Medved, who's going to be coming up, CEO of our crowd. Caroline Glick is scheduled for later on. Effie Zuroff from the Simon Wiesenthal Center office in Israel. Yossi Klein-Halevi, the prolific author. They are all expected to be part of this broadcast today. Uh, on JM in the AM. We encourage everybody to get involved, to react to what we're saying, and to let us know what you want to hear, where you are, etc., etc., by going to the NSN, Nachum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and commenting on the app. Feel free to comment away. And of course, all through the program, our staff, led by Miriam Alwalik and Yoni Pollock, are going to be uh, Facebook living. Go to facebook.com slash Nachum Single Network. Again, facebook.com slash Nachum Siegel Network. We'll start with our slate of guests and plenty more coming up. It's a Rosh Chodesh Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM, and we are in Jerusalem at the beautiful Inbal Hotel. Greetings from Yerushalayim, everybody, from all of us at JM in the AM. Show. 
new Ohad at JM in the AM. Yoni Z before that. Yoni, you should take a uh, picture of Simon's camera and post it online. I mean, my gosh. Simon's always got the latest and most incredible contraptions, and this one is really cool. He says it's a camera. It doesn't look like one, but he says it is, in fact, one of those fancy 2018 cameras. JM and the AM are live in Jerusalem. Presidential suite in Bal Hotel. Uh, we are here for a three-day journey. This is day number two on this Rosh Chodesh morning. Thanks so much for tuning in. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Let us know where you are, what you want to hear, and what you think of our conversations here in Israel. And uh, feel free to go to Facebook right now, in fact. Go to facebook.com slash Nahum Single Network. You'll see this Facebook Live video with our first guest of the morning. Many of you have heard of Our Crowd. Our Crowd CEO is sitting to my right. His name is John Medved. Our Crowd is an equity crowdfunding platform built for accredited investors to provide venture capital funding for early stage startups. Based in Jerusalem, was launched back in February of 2013 with overseas branches in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and Singapore. And it seems to us, whenever Startup Nation or Our Crowd or anything having to do with high tech in Israel is ever discussed, it seems that Our Crowd and John Medved's names are always associated with those conversations. An honor to welcome you to JM and the AM. Thank you, Nachum. It's great to be here. You are living in Israel for how long? Almost 40 years now. 40 years? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a lifer. <laughs> were, you al- were you always in this line of work? Um, pretty much. The family business in my family was uh, fiber optic communications. Hmm. And uh, I studied history. I tried to escape it. Um, and I came to Israel as a 
wild-eyed Zionist with together with friends of yours like Steve Leibowitz. And Steve's uh, been getting a lot of airtime this week. Well, he <laughs> deserves it. Well that's deserved. Sure, that's for sure. And uh, my dad showed up to go check out, you know, check out, see how it was doing here. And I ended up taking him to a meeting um, so he could discuss his latest startup with some guys at the Missile Authority, which uh, is called Raphael, the guys who make Iron Dome. Right. And these guys started talking fiber optics, and I was bored as, you know, tears. And, and finally, one of the guys turns to me at the end of this meeting and says, okay, Medved Jr., what are you what are you doing here in Israel? And I told him I'm doing some tour guiding and politics and Zionist education. And he looked at me and said, bizbuz which means waste waste of time. Waste of time. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? We're supposed to be dancing the horror. Okay, we're, we're having fun here. Idealism. I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling the Zionist dream. And he says, you don't get it. Guys like you, Askanim, we got a dime a dozen. Your dad, he's an entrepreneur. He's doing fiber optics. Do that stuff. So I got in the car after this meeting was over, and I turned to my father. And I said, what do you do? What is this? And he said, in his inimitable style, he said, son, it starts with Ohm's Law. You know, of course, I had no idea what Ohm's Law was, the you know, basic law of electronics. So make a long story short, I got involved in the family fiber optics business and uh, built that, sold that with my dad to the Amoco Corporation today, British Petroleum. So and that I, corporation was not based in Israel when you were working on it, obviously. Well, I started here in Israel, actually. I raised money for him. Uh, uh, so there were investors in Israel. There were, well, actually, there was no venture capital. I raised money from a Israeli company called ECI Telecom. But I started in venture capital before there was venture capital. Right. I've built a whole series of startups ever since. I ran one of Israel's first venture capital funds called Israel Seed. And uh, then about six years ago, wanted to go open this up to the world because everybody's crazy about Startup Nation, right? right? You hear about it, you read the book. How do I play it? Can you call your broker at Goldman or Morgan and say, get me this startup? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. So... Typically, you got to have a lot of bucks to play. You know, you got to have a five million, ten million dollar check that you can write to a venture capital fund. But what does that do for the rest of us who might have a couple of million stashed away, God willing, and they'd like to invest fifty thousand or a hundred thousand in a startup? So we set up this platform to go essentially democratize it, allow everybody to pick a company in medical technology or ag tech or the web or you name it. And we're now the largest venture capital investor in Israel. We have, uh, we'll be crossing the billion dollars of assets under management this year. We've invested in 160 companies. We have close to 30,000 members or investors around the world. And uh, we're living in sort of biblical times. I mean, you know, when you look at the flocks of people, I mean, I just left my office today. And today I had a group of very, very wealthy investors from Germany, had a delegation of Chinese, a delegation of Koreans. Uh, tonight, I've got Italians. I mean, they just, they're coming from all over the world to go get a piece of the innovation. It's almost like Zaharia, where they say that 10 right. people of the nations will grab the cloak of Ishiudi and say, take me to your leader. Speaking with John Medved here in Jerusalem, um... Well, a couple of things. First of all, in terms of the platform that you described, so we're familiar, as most people who peruse the Internet are, 
with GoFundMe campaigns. And sure. those, those are campaigns where someone literally could, you know, toss in five bucks and they're part of this big effort. And then you described what, you know, venture capital was uh, exclusively at one time, which was people taking five, ten, twenty million dollars and investing it. You're you're in that in between stage. That's where correct. We were offering people around the world who have some significant funds, but you know, can't write a check for five million dollars uh, to invest in something to be part of this process. Now, based on the way things are going in 2018, and Israel's reputation throughout the world, which you just indicated by the type of guests you have in your office today. One might think you have the easiest job in the world. <laughs> One might think that when you put out a call, when you release an email, when you send out a release or, 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 or post something that's now investable in Israel, that you get reaction from everywhere and are able to sell all those shares, so to speak, at a moment's notice. Well, almost. Okay. It is almost that. It, it's almost that. I mean, uh, literally, we just sent out an email a couple of weeks ago in one deal where in one hour there was over $2 million transacted over the internet. Guy, one person actually just clicking a button saying, I'm in for a million. Right. Because we have people who will invest the minimum is $10,000, and we have people who are actually in writing $10 million checks. So we yeah. have you know many billionaires who are on the site. Um, but that's what's cool about it, is it's really turning this much more democratic because... Look, everybody understands that the big companies today are tech companies, right. whether it's Google or Apple. And what percentage of your portfolio or what you're offering would be tech companies? Is 100%. It's 100%. <laughs> it's There's 100%. nothing else you can invest no, in in Israel no, through your office. Not, not through us. So everyone wants to be in the next tech company. It turns out that there are about 300 of these things called unicorns. Mm. I don't know if you're yeah, the term, sure. A unicorn is a company which is worth a billion dollars. Hence the uni, right. okay, uh, but not yet public. Right. There are about 300 of them worldwide. Turns out that there are 21 of them here in Israel. Give me an example that we've heard of, or or we've heard of none of them. Um, you know, <laughs> has look, the average person heard of any of you these? No, you might have heard of companies like Fiverr, mm -hmm. you know, which are uh, or Lemonade, or you well, know, Fiverr we see on Facebook. All yeah, the time. there's a wonderful company or Iron Source or um, there there are a whole you know slew of them. Just a new company called JFrog just raised money. Uh, we have a bunch of sunicorns. We actually have four unicorns, okay? Uh, some of them in That's Israel. That's a billion. And what's sunicorn? A sunicorn is soon to be a billion. Soon to be a billion. <laughs> Almost there. <laughs> Almost at a billion dollars. Um, and uh, we have a bunch of those. Look, we, we have companies that are really making us very proud, uh, both at our crowd and I think in Israel in general, because... They're making money and doing good at the same time. John Medved's here. The greatest example of your success would be which company? Which is the one that, you know, everybody turns to that was under your umbrella and says, look what can be done. Look what can be, well, uh, I look mean, at the success. Th there are a whole series of them. But we, we put money into a company called Rewalk, which essentially allows paraplegics to walk again. Wow. Okay, so you see people get up out of a wheelchair for the first time in their lives. And the whole world needs that. And people start to wave their hands right. and, and praise the Lord, um, which they should. And it's for real. It's done, it's me for, it's it's, done medically. It's, it's, done, it's real. It's robotic it's legs. And, and robotic. Okay, uh, we have uh, a company called Zebra Medical who use artificial intelligence to read radiological images so that, you know, you can now diagnose cancer or even arteriosclerosis or other maladies by the computer interpreting the image, mm -hmm. which is exactly what we need. Mm -hmm. We have a company called CropX, which is doing wireless irrigation. 
meaning instead of you know instead of using little tubes to drip, which we're very good at sure. here. That's what we're all known for. You know, here. usually people understood that the the the, the dichotomy is. Drip or spritz. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and drip is usually better, they claim. <laughs> drip is better than spritz. Right. But if you can have controlled spritz, right, where you build a control panel using wireless sensors, you can save 40% of your uh, water costs. You don't have to install the stuff. And that's a company called CropEx, which actually was one of the four companies that Angela Merkel just visited uh, last week. Was she impressed? I think so. I think she, she, the picture that I posted on Facebook, she looked very impressed. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we have a whole series of them. We, and by the way, we're not only investing in Israel. And one of the cool things about our platform now is we're sort of spreading our wings from Israel all around the world with Israel at its heart. So in March, March 7th, we'll have our annual summit. There'll be 15,000 people making a Ali Regal, a pilgrimage to Israel to attend this summit. And about half of them will come from abroad. They'll come from over 100 countries, and they'll be investors, but they'll also be entrepreneurs who want to hook up. They want to be part of this international network. And you, you look at what Israel's doing in autonomous driving, right? We have now 400 companies in the country going after what, the for car. driverless cars? Yes, but you, you, know, you think of Israel. What did Israel was it known for? Bad driving. And bad driving, <laughs> and the worst car ever made in history, the Susita. That was an right. Israeli that car. That was an Israeli car. It, it, it was it basically camel food if you parked it, you know, overnight in the Negev. It was know. God. <laughs> camel would munch. He's happy. Okay, you're less so. But the, the reality is today with Mobileye bought for $15 billion by Intel, right. there's every wanna, wannabe who wants to follow with a laser radar or sensor fusion or big data or car-to-car communications. And you've got the... The General Motors and the uh, the Fords and the Hondas and the Hyundais, they're coming here in droves. We're senior guys at these companies come here like on a 60, 90-day revolving basis. They have their hotels. To observe what's going on. To observe, to invest, to acquire. Right. We had a, but I'm confused on the, on, the, on the driverless cars. 400 companies with that aim? 400 companies? Yes, now they're with, all building essentially components, right? Because remember, right. what is a car today? Right. A car is 600 chips on some wheels. It's all electronics. Right. So and each in, one is responsible for another and, and one. Yeah, and there's different functions, and there's communications, and there's sensing, and there's uh, uh, a cybersecurity, right. right? You don't want a hacker to drive you off the bridge or right. into a wall. So we sold a company called Argus Cybersecurity for close to $450 million to a German company called Continental because they want to be ahead in cybersecurity for the car. Um, we have another company called uh, CyberMDX, which is doing cybersecurity for medical devices. Because you don't want to receive a hacker's note that says you've got 30 minutes to live or I'm essentially shutting down your pacemaker right. or your insulin pump unless you send this million dollars to a Chinese bank account. And that's coming. But Israel will be there to protect you. You know, it's funny. I, I, I heard a, a speech given by, I'm sure you don't have trouble believing this, a 20-year-old, uh, someone in his 20s, rather, about cybersecurity and how it's uh, developing and how Israel's at the forefront of the industry. And I said to him, you know, when you ask somebody who knows something uh, about the defense of the United States, military in the United States, you could ask them, you know, are we well protected? We're citizens of the U.S. Are we well protected? And they can tell you, well, we have these number of tanks and this type of personnel and these types of military budget, etc. And they give you a feeling that you're protected. How does one convince 
the average person, that when it comes to cybersecurity, we are in fact protected the same way we are with the military protecting we, our first of all, physical you, you, selves. You don't convince them because we are not. We are not. We are absolutely not. It's I mean, a weakness look, across it's, the board. It's, it's like death, sort of. There's, you can postpone it. You can make it palatable. But the bad guys are coming for you, and they are not stopping. And we are all at terrible risk. And you can improve it by, you know, good behavior. Don't click on links that you... Right. You know, people are always clicking on links and getting their credentials hacked. Uh, don't fall for phishing attacks. Don't right, but that's know, on the that's on the private scale. I, I'm thinking these corporations. I, I'll tiff yeah. but I'm thinking why is it that the water system of the U.S. isn't shut down by some hacker? Why is it that we have no electricity for a week and a half because it's a hacker? Chesdeshamai. Simple as that. It's <laughs> not mean, the great Israeli cybersecurity. I mean, look, we're all working very hard to protect it, and there are people who are really involved um, on uh, critical infrastructure. We have a company called CyberX, which is busy yeah, at work. Right. Uh, we have a company, ThetaRay, who is doing cybersecurity for financial crime and big banks. But it's this cat and mouse thing. The more that we put into it, right. the more that hackers... And there's states whose biggest economy is hacking. Right. The North Koreans, the Iranians, that's what they're doing. That's you know They don't export anything. They don't make anything. They hack. And they are stealing, in some cases, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, and we don't even know about it. So, you know, some of these things are you just have to sort of trust in God, get on with your life, do what you can, but those bad guys are out there, and you should be doing everything you can to protect yourself. Well, to but try to stay ahead of the bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John Medved's here, CEO of Our Crowd. All right, you, you alluded to this earlier, and for me it's a very big topic, so I want you to help me with it philosophically. Uh, you alluded to the fact that now we are in a very special time. Now we yeah. are in a really a biblical proportion. Obviously, we've always been living, you know, through through the eyes of the Bible. But now it is so evident. You know, we are back in this country. Uh, I could certainly say that for you and others who've who've made their home this country. And the the seventy years of the state of Israel is is magical. And there's just so much going on. Um, and you agree that that as I like to say, when the leadership of Israel goes to the world now and says. Hop aboard because, you know, if you want to be part of this whole revolution, you better make sure to establish good ties with Israel. Otherwise, you're going to be left, you know, you're going to be left at, back there at the station, so look, to speak. Look, it's front and center. You can just look at this visit of the German Chancellor right. Merkel this last week. We have a good relationship with Germany. Okay, it's historical, it's complicated, but t in, in general... But today, it's a good relationship. It's, a, it's quite a good relationship. Right. This whole visit was about technology. They weren't talking about settlements and, you know, maybe behind the scenes, right. some of it, but it was all about tech. I think she mentioned Iranian sanctions, but okay. The, yeah. <laughs> the Chinese vice premier is coming here in about two weeks, coming to speak at the prime minister's tech conference, where he's just taking two days out of his busy schedule. I bet you he enjoys that. When he goes to the world, he's talking tech. When we are talking to almost anybody, they're looking at Israel and saying, wait a minute. Uh, last week, there was data published about the number of artificial intelligence startups in the world. They ranked the countries in terms of the absolute numbers of startups. You know how the ranking works? Number one, obviously, the U.S., about 1,300 startups. Number two is China, 390. Number three is Israel, 380. We're 10 startups behind the Chinese. Go out there, guys, and build the startups so we can get number two. But do you know how absurd that is? We're 9 million people for crying out loud. How do we have as many artificial intelligence startups as the Chinese? 
It's absurd. And yet anybody who, you know, understands this stuff looks at this and says, you know, I need access to innovation. I got to be playing in Israel. And whether it's in digital health or it's in cybersecurity or it's artificial intelligence or it's autonomous driving or it's precision agriculture or it's drones or it's big data, we got it here and they're coming. It's unbelievable. Now, what direction would your career have taken if Israel would not have done so well in this area? I'm curious. I'd probably be hanging with Steve on the football field. <laughs> so this was tailor-made for you, huh? I just kept you out of trouble. I, look, you know, for me, this is probably the most fun job in the world. Because to sit around with mostly young people, okay, who have dreams, to listen to them pitch you their dream, right? In other words, my... Some people get pitch dreams, I guess, psychologists. Usually mm -hmm. they're bad and weird. But, <laughs> you know, but I get people who pitch me wonderful dreams, and then I get to decide or be part of a process of deciding, can I become an enabler? Can I invest in that dream? Can I hook them up with connections to other corporations? Can we help promote them? Can we bring a, a force multiplier to help them achieve their dreams? And when these dreams are helping the disabled walk or to feed the hungry or to heal the sick and to do it or from, to water those plants or to water the plant or, and to do it from israel mm -hmm. it's this huge public kiddush hashem that i feel humbled okay i feel like whoa how did i <laughs> get lucky what do you think when you hear that israel could solve cape town's water problem in half a year and they refuse to take help because it's israel i think they're schmucks <laughs> Okay, I think, I think it's really, you know... They're depriving their like, own citizens because of their hatred. It's shooting yourself in the head. And by the way, many of them get this. I, I was in South Africa sitting on a, uh, a plane next to a guy from the African National Congress who was a fairly senior guy. I will not name him uh, for his, uh, you know, benefit. And he said, look, we have a, you know, two-faced attitude here. We have to, a public thing where we can't talk about Israel. But boy, do we need your help. And they need our help in water, and they need our help in ag tech, and they need our help in financial technology and security. And most of the countries of the world get it and are doing it. So with India, there is this unbelievable relationship, right? And there are a lot more Indians than there are South Africans, you know, close to a billion and a half. Yeah, and, plus you and mentioned the Chinese. Also the have Chinese, a significant population. By the way, but it's the Europeans, mm -hmm. right? We catch all this flack about Europe's mm -hmm. political... They're doing more business and more investment. Um, England, despite Corbyn, you know, is now at an all-time high in terms of Israel trade. Okay, Latin America, I'm going to be in Colombia, of all places, in a couple of weeks. And they are just desperate to access Israeli technology on every level. And it's just, it's, it's, it's really, I think people don't get how much this has changed because we have sort of the Schwarze Zeine Yid mm -hmm. uh, philosophy. Attitude, right? You know, it's hard to be a Jew. The whole world hates us. Okay, they're chasing us. BDS is out to get us. And I'm sitting at my Shabbos table with a <laughs> Haver Knesset and a one of the largest hedge fund investors in the world. And the Haver Knesset's very active in the anti-BDS stuff and he turns to the hedge fund guy and he says, okay, so how are we doing on this anti-BDS thing? And the guy goes, what? He goes, BDS, how are we doing fighting it? He goes, what's BDS? He goes, what, you don't know what BDS is? Goes, don't you feel it? I, I, he had no idea. People don't know. It's just the Jews. We're paranoid. Like, we should be paranoid. We have to fight boycotts. 
But the whole world is pretty much into a boycott now of Israel. There's this idiot named Roger Waters, you know, who's, sure. uh, whose career should have ended long ago. He's boycotting us. Big deal. We get over it, okay? And if there's, you know, some uh, uh, wannabe Roger Waters, gig isn't to hate. John Medved's here. Uh, before you go, before you go, we have been informed that you are connected to one of the most significant Jewish music acts of the last, what do you want to say, a year or two? Would that uh, be accurate? That would, that would be accurate. And that is because, if I have this correct, half of Yonina is your daughter. That's correct. And the other half is my son-in-law. Do you know? <laughs> very good, right. You, do, do you know that the two of them were in our studio for a really nice visit? How wonderful. Well, she's uh, Bishatova expecting any minute now. So, so there'll be another member of the there'll group. There'll hopefully be a, yet now a second younger generation right. Yoninaite and... Uh, no, you know, look, this is all good. I mean, this is really the power of the Internet, of the alternative media. They wanted so much to recruit them to the voice. Right. But they didn't... It you know, wasn't their thing. No, they said, this is not right. This is right. not Sneezdick. This is not who right. we are. And they said, but look, you know, uh, uh, Aviv Geffen is the host. Mm-hmm. And look how famous he is. He'll help you. Mm-hmm. Turns out Yonina have more likes on Facebook than Aviv Geffen. So there you go. That's good to know. That's a great statistic. I love it. Uh, John Medved, how do people get information about what you do? They go to www.rcrowd.com. They're certainly welcome to send me emails to john, J-O-N, at rcrowd.com. And it's free to sign up. You have to be an accredited investor, so you have to meet the criteria in the U.S. But you get to see really cool information about exciting technology companies and stay connected to Israel's miracle in the tech world. Do you know our host, the gentleman to your right? I certainly do. Barry's man. Mr. Barry Lieben is here, everybody. He is the Barry man. has done. I like it when he's here. I'm no longer the richest guy in the room. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, no need to edit that out, is there? Uh, so Barry is back from one of the most important things one does when they are in the city of Jerusalem. I have this... I have supporting this. the local economy. Exactly. Supporting the local economy. Did you make some nice purchases? Uh, my, I, I found a nice place to sit in the shade. <laughs> and everybody else? And my wife and grandchildren and children shopped at every store on Ben Yehuda Street. <laughs> That's spirit. That's the way to do it. That's, That's the great. way to do it. What can't, can't and now you make a couple of investments and you got a trifecta. You know, you're all I made an investment. I bought a bar. <laughs> <laughs> we remember that the bar. Lion's Den. Did you, May it rest in peace. Did you walk by it today? <laughs> I, I walked by what is now no longer the Lion's Den. I remember the Lion's Den. That's what happens, you know. My wife said she wanted real estate in Israel. She didn't think I meant the bar. <laughs> <laughs> what did grandson Cole end up with from Ben Yehuda Cole, Street? What did, well, his beautiful necklace nice. he's wearing. Very nice. Right, Cole? A good like memory it. of Jerusalem. Yes. <laughs> How much do you like it? A lot. Okay. There you go. <laughs> a man of he's a natural. <laughs> he's a natural. He he's told me already he'd like to take over the show soon. Absolutely. He's got a personality. What else did you get, Cole? A ball plastic knife. Ooh. <laughs> it's under his chair. Oh, yes, it is. A plastic knife. And he got some T-shirts and and some other stuff. Right, Cole? And I got a magic set. A magic set. A magic set? I didn't even know they sold those on Ben Yehuda. Ben Yehuda has everything they got for it all. everybody. They've got it the all. The women folk took care of the more illustrious purchases. <laughs> and they're still there. <laughs> they're still on Ben Yehuda yes, Street. Yes, they still are. 
Unbelievable. Uh, we thank Barry. He, of course, is our host here in Jerusalem, the Inbal Hotel's presidential suite, Mir Peset, the beautiful porch overlooking the old city. Uh, you have to admit, as glorious as yesterday was, today is even more it's glorious. It's a great day. Just incredible. Thank and this you. is your final full day in the state final of Israel. Final full day. Sadly, we leave tomorrow. Unbelievable. And this time, you're really feeling it. You're feeling that sadness. You expressed that to us yesterday. I am feeling very sad. I wish I would have made to stay longer. Wow, unbelievable. Well, Barry, we thank you again. And welcome back from Ben Yehuda. Of course, everybody who comes to Israel should make sure to make that part of their agenda. More coming up. You are listening to a Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM live from Israel.
JM in the AM. A little bit of Rogers Park here on a uh, Tuesday morning broadcast. Second day of our three-day adventure to the Holy Land. We are at the Lieben Presidential Suite uh, patio overlooking the old city of Jerusalem here at the Inbal Hotel, the beautiful and incredible Inbal Hotel, always our headquarters in Jerusalem when we uh, show up to do some broadcasting. In this case, we actually are doing our broadcasting from the hotel itself all through this three-day stretch. So we thank the Inbal Hotel profusely for their service and for their hospitality. And, of course, to the Lieben family, who we have inconvenienced much more than anybody ever thought we would, uh, we thank them for their patience and their hospitality. I'm sorry? Please leave. Could you please? <laughs> Barry's, Barry's quote from today's show, could you please leave? Uh, we have uh, more special guests no, all I'm through leaving. our... <laughs> You're leaving. All, uh, many special guests through our show, including the guest sitting to my right. Yossi Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Served as visiting professor of Israel studies at JTS in New York in the fall of 2013. Former contributing editor of the New Republic. I used to um, I used to jump with excitement when an issue of the New Republic would show up at my uh, mailbox. Oh, really? Yeah, that a right. National Review. Try to try to understand That's me. Exactly right. It, it should be that exactly way, right? It should exactly be that right. way. Yeah. Uh, right to the op-ed pages of many leading newspapers, and his latest book is "Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor." In its first week of publication, the book made it to the New York Times bestseller list in the hardcover non-fiction category. Yassi Klein Halevi, shalom and welcome to JMN. Well, thank you. Wonderful to be here, and and I have to tell you, Barry, it's just fantastic to see you after literally 50 years. Yes, and I remember very well our time together in camp. I do too. I was present at the historic moment when you became a Beitari. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you were 15? Yes, I was 15. And we were, that's and it. And I remember telling you, yes, he moved to Israel and become one of the great scholars of the world. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> I do. So I take full credit for his entire career. Barry did say before this broadcast that you knew back then uh, of how great his intelligence was and how he could do this really, really well. Yes, he was always a brilliant young man, and I don't want to repeat any of the stories that will embarrass him, so I'm not going <laughs> I to. Feel, I feel like this is my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> just a tribute, just a tribute, not a he, funeral. He was always, I can tell you one thing, yes, he was always outspoken. Had an opinion. Yeah, and, and he always had an opinion, and he never kept it to himself. So um, <laughs> I'm not surprised uh, about his career. And it, it's so nice to walk in and see him. Well, right. it's, it's so mutual, Barry. Yes. I really, I, and I, I always, I always, I just remember having this great love and respect for you. Oh, when, thank when you. That's we very 15. nice. Yeah, and it's very mutual. And I, I followed his career all the time in the newspapers and his books. And it's so nice to see. It's like old timers' day here. I'm waiting for Yogi Berra to come out. But I don't think it's going to happen. He won't be showing up. I next. don't think he'll show up today. Um, your your political opinions would likely be the same as your fellow Beitaris or possibly somewhat different? Possibly somewhat different. Uh, it's interesting. My guess as well. <laughs> but you know it's interesting because in, in some sense, once a Beitari, always a Beitari. Even if your political opinions change, what Beitar did for, for us when we, were, when we were starting to think about our Jewish identity and our place in in, in in the Jewish world was give us backbone because we were the eccentrics, the outcasts of, of Jewish life. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that at a time when, you know, we, we've had Likud governments for 40 years now, right. but we, I, I, we were, you were we, the opposition. We were, we were the lunatics. Right. We were the joke. The fringe. And, and to, to join Beitar 
in the 1960s in America meant that you really didn't care what anybody thought about you. Right. Because everybody, your pa- from your parents to your, to, nobody could understand what, what you were doing there. So right. what? They either didn't understand or they hated you. Yeah, right. It was that's, one of the alternatives. Right. No one no. said, oh, that's great. That's right. No, no, or no. we respect look, your opinion. Look, right. we, we were the only, first of all, we were the only ones who didn't have a light blue work shirt or uniform. Or a t-shirt. <laughs> or a t-shirt. Right, right. You come home from summer and you're wearing this dark blue shirt with a light blue tie <laughs> with epaulets and your parents go, what the hell is that? <laughs> say this, this was what we wore yeah. in summer camp. <laughs> right. This is what we wore every Friday night. <laughs> So you, it's you're some absolutely right. Yes, you're absolutely right. It, that's a great way to phrase it. Beitar, if nothing else, gave you backbone. And and every one of us is an individual. Mm-hmm. Right. So therefore, and you obviously knew what direction I was going in with my opening question. Right. Something either happened, or certain personalities may have had some influence, or maybe not so drastic an episode occurred that may have shifted your point of view somewhat. Yeah, Mayor Kahana had a big influence on me, but in a negative way. Uh, I graduated eventually from Beitar, like 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 many of us, to JDL, and and I was. Uh, part of of Kahana's world in America and then when he start when he came to Israel and uh, ran for the Knesset for the first time in 1973 I came here as a student and the first thing I did was you know show up in and volunteer for his campaign and then I saw that what the Kahana the Kahana that was emerging here was not the same Kahana that I thought I knew in America. It was, first of all, Soviet Jewry wasn't as interesting anymore. Right. In America, it was right. protecting and diaspora And people don't realize Jews. that he's responsible for putting that issue on the map. That's a separate issue. He's moment. one of those. There, it's, it's a more Does not get the credit he deserves, I think. But okay. it's, it's, nobody, okay. nobody got right. the credit they deserved, right. including Yaakov Birnbaum right. and Glenn Richter. Glenn Richter. You know, really. It wasn't solely Kahana. Oh, no, I'm not saying solely. Yeah. I think sometimes but he's he overlooked great, in that list. He did a great job. Yeah, sometimes I think and, and so... When, uh, when I came here and, and I saw that what Kahana's direction was to become the, the leader of the farthest right-wing fringe and to really speak more and more, not about love of the Jewish people, but of hatred for others. And, and eventually hatred for Jews with whom he disagreed, even right. calling for the murder of Jews that he disagreed with. And so Kahana became my, my anti-teacher in, uh, in, in, in the dangers of, uh, of, uh, of extremist thinking. So the quote-unquote American kahana, in your opinion, was more about Jewish pride, Jewish protection, Jewish activism. Would that be accurate? Yes, with a big but. Because I, I do think today that there's a direct line between the kahana that we saw in Israel and the kahana in America. It, it wasn't as... as in, Bolet, we say in Hebrew. How would you say bolet? Um, as uh, as as explicit. Right. Uh, it, there were certain tendencies. Uh, Undercurrents. A, a love of violence. You know, I I, I I always felt that Kahana's motto was, or should have been, uh, why solve problems peacefully when you can solve them violently? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, violence is a first resort. I think he really loved violence. Jesse Klein Alevi is here. So you show up to work at his campaign. When does the love affair start to dissipate? Immediately. Immediately. The Yom Kippur War happens right. a few weeks after I, I 
come to Israel, and the campaign, the the Knesset campaign, is uh, is postponed till December. Right. And right. Kahana, who had been pretty much of a shoo-in uh, before the war, doesn't get into the Knesset, right. and becomes a very bitter, aggrieved uh, uh, man, and and. Uh, Almost everyone who knew him in America broke, eventually broke with him. Do you remember 1985 when he tried to form a Dinati Huda? Do you even remember that was a very small, like, I don't know, yeah. maybe it lasted a couple of weeks, <laughs> an effort to literally take the area of Yehuda and make it separate? Was, look, you know, this is, Kahana never understood the meaning of Jewish sovereignty. He never, he never, and, and this is true for a lot of Jews, that, that you, he didn't understand that the rules are different when you're a sovereign country right, right. than when, when you're a, a besieged minority. And he brought that same mentality and tactics from the streets of Brooklyn to, uh, to, to Israel. So that's why Gandhi, and in this case I mean Rahav Zevi, that's why his message worked better because of his Israeli roots, or you wouldn't say that? Well, he didn't really take, you know, he, you he never took him? off politically either. Right. But, uh, no, there I was look, a pla- in, okay, yeah. and... and you know, I, 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 Kahana actually sent me, uh, when, when I was working on his campaign, sent me to try to recruit Yisrael Eldad, mm. one, of the, uh, the th- one of the three leaders of, of the Lehi. Right. And uh, the first thing that Eldad says to me is, under no circumstances am I going to have anything to do with that lunatic. And this was Eldad, who should, you know. Yeah, who had his own not, lunacy. We're not talking about a mainstream. <laughs> where were you at the time? And we'll move on to a different topic in a moment. This is how much I want to discuss. But where were you at the time of the Kahana assassination? Uh, I was in, uh, I was visiting France then. You were in Europe. I, I heard the news. You were in, in Europe. Europe. You heard the news. Yeah. Funerals took place, both in the U.S. and here. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And the funeral here was a semi-pogrom. Right. I remember that. People, people... F- Funeral goers ran around looking for Arabs on the streets People of Jerusalem to, attack, to beat up. Right. Uh, your latest book, ironically enough, after discussing all this, is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Right. Some people in this country find it difficult to interact with Palestinian neighbors. Do you find that? In this country, we're in Israel now. Correct. We're talking about Israel. Correct. Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to, to interact with, uh, with my neighbors, which is why the book is to an imaginary Palestinian. And I wrote this, I live in, and I live in the last, literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. And I look out onto uh, Palestinian You're right near the 67 villages. border. Say it again? You're right near the 67 border. I'm over it. You're over the 67 border. So, uh, but uh, on the next, literally on the next uh, hill are Palestinian mm-hmm. villages. And separating us is the security barrier, which in Jerusalem is a, is a wall. Right. In the urban areas, it becomes a wall. And so I, I've, I wrote this book to try to explain to the people that I look at, I look at their, their houses every day, and this is a book that attempts to explain who the Jews are and why we came home. Zionism for Palestinians and anyone else who cares to read it. From what sounds like a very positive standpoint. Right from a po- that they should understand the 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 desire or the the Absolutely. positive effect that this had on the Jewish people. Is Absolutely. it a big seller in the Palestinian community? I'm starting to get to get responses. Really? You're getting reactions yeah, from them. I am. I am not all of them negative and genocidals. <laughs> <laughs> not, <laughs> not all of them. <laughs> um, 
I'm getting some really powerful letters back uh, that are a combination of anger and also saying something has to change. And uh, people who really appreciated the, I, letters, I got letters saying this is the first time that anybody ever bothered explaining this to us. One guy, a Jordanian, writes me a five-page letter in English. Most of the letters I get are, are in Arabic and I have to translate them. But he writes me that, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not Palestinian, but technically I'm also your neighbor. And he's, he ends the letter with, and I'm, I'm quoting word for word, what the hell took you so long to start explaining yourselves to us? And that for me, if you want to sum up why I wrote this book, we, ex- we try to explain ourselves to Congress, to, uh, to European media. public opinion, media. Uh, there's, an, there, there's a pro-Israel organization that opened up an office in China. Nobody has ever tried to explain who we are and what our story is to the Middle East. So there's Hasbara to everybody except our Arab neighbors. Exactly. And so the book has been translated into Arabic. It's available for free downloading. And it's an attempt to present my own very personal um, take on on our story and and why I, why I came here, but more broadly why we came here, and why the Palestinian narrative that that dismisses us as a European colonialist intrusion is missing the the, the key point about who we are. So I wrote it as a neighbor, and without any hopes, big hopes. I I you know I know where I'm living. I I I I, I know I know what. What, what we're up against. Does any of it seem valid to them, though? Does any of it seem excusable? Is our behavior, and I'll use that term for a moment, of the Israelis uh, and the way they perceive Israeli behavior toward its neighbors excusable based on what you write to them? Look, there's a tremendous amount of anger. You know, you have a generation that's grown up uh, that, that, that has known nothing but... Uh, but military checkpoints and control. And so I explained to them in this book how I, who in principle supported two-state solution, right. how I live with the wall and, and I, there's a checkpoint just right. past the wall. It's right, right outside my window. Mm-hmm. How do I live with that view? How do I tolerate it? And so I, I explain what, what most Israelis take for granted, which is we repeatedly tried to make peace and what we got back was the worst wave of terrorism in our history. And that's a story that most Palestinians don't know. And what I write in my book is I'm, I'm not trying to convince you that my narrative is right. But I want you to understand that, that there is another narrative here. There's another story that you're not getting in your media, in your schools, in your mosques. And that's the story of your neighbors. And so... I'm offering this to you as a um, as a way of as a window into into understanding us. Just as right. I'm looking out right. at you and your hill, you're looking at me, at my hill. You're looking at French Hill every day. Yassi Klein Alevi is here. Would you agree then? And you alluded to this a moment ago with the wave of terror after all these peace attempts. Would you agree that in the Gaza Strip, for instance? That it, before the disengagement, obviously, uh, that in the uh, in certain areas of the quote unquote West Bank, um, even in Palestinian slash Jewish neighborhoods or you know entities that are near each other, that before Oslo, before all these public attempts, 
to create some type of peaceful solution that would end up in what you describe as a two-state solution, there was much more peaceful coexistence between Arabs and Jews. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I, I need to qualify that statement because I'm not a, a, an advocate of annexation. I think that, that my starting point is not my end point. My starting point is Barry's starting point. Kula Shali, it's all mine. Of course it's all mine. It's more, Judea and Samaria is more mine than Ashdod and Ashkelon, which, were, which was Eretz Plishtim. Uh-huh. So, so that's, for me, that's not an argument. And what I say in the book is that if there ever is going to be real, real talks, real peace talks with our neighbors, which we haven't had until now, the starting point has to be right wing. The starting point is you sit down at the table, you're facing Palestinian negotiators who say without any apology, it's all mine. I'm giving up 79% of, of historic Palestine for a West Bank Gaza state, right? That's what they say. Right. So I want my negotiators to say the same thing. It's all mine. But as we say in Hebrew, malasot, what can you do? There's another people sitting in this land. I don't want to rule them forever. It, I, and I certainly don't want them in the Knesset. I don't want 40-plus percent of the Israeli population to be Palestinian. This will not be a governable country. And so, Belet Berera, without, with, with no alternative, I'm ready to cut what belongs, what, what, I'm ready to amputate part of my body, because that's what this is. And what the big mistake that the Israeli left has made is saying it's not ours. So it's not yours. What you're not giving? You're not giving right. up anything. What do you negotiate? You're just giving. You know, you're 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 just giving back something that belongs to them. That's not my position. Um, wouldn't it be unfair though? You just said there was no real peace negotiation. Wouldn't that be unfair to you know Prime Minister Shamir who went to Madrid in 1988 and Oslo of the early 90s and the White House lawn of September 1993? Look, wouldn't it be unfair the Rabin Arafat handshake under Clinton's uh, tutelage? Wouldn't that be unfair to say there's been no real attempt when when to us it seems right from this side of the perspective that we really have made an effort to get to the table and start talking, talking. I was talking to someone who uh, has been uh, at the table for all most of those negotiations. Initials, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just just the other day, and yeah. he and and he said to me the I line. I have a feeling I know who this he is. Said okay. to me, he said to me the line that summed up the whole thing. Yeah. He said we were negotiating peace, and they were negotiating decolonialization. Right. Now, if one side thinks we're make we we thought we're negotiating peace because we're not colonialists. We have a claim here. You have a claim. We have a claim. Let's try to make peace. But if the other side says, no, no, you don't have a claim. Only we have a claim. And we're just here to negotiate how to turn this into post-apartheid South Africa. Look, what did Mm -hmm. Arafat used to say? Arafat always used to say, I'm waiting for my de Klerk. Mm -hmm. What did de Klerk do? Mm -hmm. He dismantled South Africa. That's what Arafat was looking for. And 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 he almost had it. And, he and almost had it in Ehud Barak. He, he almost had it. He, well, Barak made the offer. Well, exactly. Arafat himself blew it. So, you know, so look, my, my, my position is, I would say, the position of 60% of Israelis, which is if there was a chance for a real deal, if we had a real partner, then I would 
be willing with all the pain to to make those concessions right. for a real peace that's le- that brings us legitimacy. Yeah, I mean, but we're not there. Right. So it's all theoretical. Understood. And in the, in in the absence of a chance for peace. I want to start having conversations with Palestinians. Right, understood. From the ground up, so to speak. From the ground up. Um, should I guess on the air or off the air who that person was from the uh, negotiations? Oh, we'll do it off, off the air? We'll do it off, off. the air. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have actually two people in mind. We'll see if I'm right. Um, and, and you alluded earlier, you mentioned the 1978 change in Israeli government. 77? 77? 77 would be more accurate. 1977 change in Israeli government. All right, Barry, where were you in 1977? Begin Begin wins. Where are you? Oh, in New York. You were in New York and Begin won. Celebrating like a lunatic. Correct. I mean, that was one of the most political blunders. That was unbelievable. That was a that was Rabin's political blunder, basically, right? In in terms of the third party being formed. When Rabin was prime minister the first time. Correct, and then and then he. I don't know. Well, you know, you know, after after 29 years and right. and 20 years before that, right. it was time it was for fun, a democratic right. change. Understood, but it also. Ha- I'm, but I'm, all I'm saying is it happened because of strange circumstances. Yeah. It's not yeah. like it happened because the yeah. electorate, you know, all of a sudden, you know, went went, went to one side over another. Well, it's it's the it Mizra- was, it, there was the revolt of the Mizrahim, right. but the next generation there was the belated response to the Yom Kippur War. Right. There was the corruption and labor. And there was the fact that it was time for, uh, you know. Would any of this be different if uh, Lee couldn't have moved into prominently the you know the most important position for the last forty years? Would any of this be different? Yeah. Let's say we would have a labor labor government. Like, you know, my 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 um, scenario for for how how an eventual peace agreement will happen if there's ever going to be one, if there'll ever be a chance, it's only going to come from the right. Right. It's going to be a pragmatic right-winger who will say, uh, it's ours, but I have to save the state of Israel. And if saving the state of Israel means giving up parts of the land of Israel, then I have to do that. How many books have you written? Four. And if one would uh, pick up one of them, which would be the one you'd recommend? Well, the latest one will is uh, is 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 the shortest. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's an incentive. <laughs> That's an incentive right there. <laughs> I pick up the shortest. The, like Dreamers, the one before that was the longest. You know, you know your like Dreamers <laughs> book, just based on the title, Israeli paratroopers reunite Jerusalem, divide a nation. It is interesting to me that paratroopers are viewed completely as a separate entity when it comes to. Uh, the military, when it comes right. to, you know... They used to be. The truth is that they've lost a lot of their stature. But in 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 1967, it was the paratroopers and the rest of the army. They're the Marines of Israel, basically, yeah. in yeah. terms of but the way not, the public but, views but them. Not but not anymore. anymore. No, Golani right, is, Golani's uh, got you know, the there's a big competition between Golani oh. and, and Sanchanim. And, yeah. and, and that book focuses on their role... In the war, right? That 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 they essentially what won the war yeah. or no? Well, say? well, the book really is 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 an attempt to tell the story of the fifty year debate between the Israeli left and the right through seven paratroopers who fought in Jerusalem, uh-huh. and so I chose four kibbutzniks and three future settlers. Right. So not necessarily obviously from the same war, the same era. Obviously, but we're talking no, about different times. No, no, no. But these were seven people who fought in Jerusalem right. together, Correct. and they were friends. And then they became political enemies, but they stayed friends. So they did fight in the same way. Oh, yeah. They fought in Jerusalem in 67. They crossed the canal together in 73. And they were in Lebanon together in 82. The same guys. And so the book is really an attempt to tell a history of Israel in a way that's not a history book, but is a 
is a story of these seven amazing guys. Are there seven different political opinions? Every one of them is different, including that the settlers argue among themselves and the left-wingers argue among themselves. It's, it's, so you really see the, the nuance in, in this argument. And, and you know one of the things that really troubles me when I go back to America to, to speak and I speak to groups is how much of the Israeli nuance gets lost abroad. And abroad, you're either, you know, uh, Hebron now and forever, or peace now, or further left. And here, a majority of Israelis, I would consider centrist, which means they're hawkish, they're, they're unapologetic about the land of Israel belonging to us, but under certain circumstances, they're ready to make a deal. And, and that's a majority of this country. When I go to the States, I don't find those people. At least not, they're not organized. And, and you know, and, and I, I'm, I, I find that I go into a time warp when I go to American Jewry. When I speak in Orthodox and right-wing communities, they're behind it's, the times. it's the 1980s, right. you know, and Begin or Shamir are still prime minister, and the first intifada hasn't happened yet, and no problem, we can absorb, you know, three million Palestinians, five, no problem. And then when I go speak in, in, in liberal Jewish communities, it's the 90s. It's the Oslo years. And the second intifada hasn't happened, as if we didn't try to, to, to create a Palestinian state and as if it didn't blow up in our faces. And, and so most Israelis, are, are, or a majority of Israelis, are not in the 80s and not in the 90s anymore. We're living after the first intifada, which showed us the limits of, of, of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, and we're after the second intifada, which showed us the limits of peace now. And, and in America, it's still a debate between Eretz Yisrael HaShlema and peace now. Brilliant analysis. So. Brilliant analysis. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that I would... Uh, it just happens to be wrong, Bay Barry. training. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned to you earlier... But I want to say something. Actually, there's something else about the Beitar training, which is exactly oh. right. And, and that is, what I learned in Beitar is no illusions. You face the reality of the Jewish people as it is. The greatness of Jabotinsky was that everyone else was living in illusions. Right. And Jabotinsky said, as brent a fire. So it's burning, right. it's coming. And everybody laughed at him or called him a fascist. And, and, and what, what, what we learned in Beitar is whatever the reality is, as difficult as it is, you face it. And what troubles me today about the ideological left and right is that they are selective in, their, in, in how they face reality. The left wants to pretend that we can make peace with a Palestinian national movement that doesn't accept our, our right to exist. It's the only conflict in the world where one side has to, has to negotiate its, its right to exist. That's not a starting point. That's the end point. That's what we get at the end of the negotiations. You know? And the other side of it, the right, uh, is denying, is denying the, what, what it means to be, to be ruling over a civilian population that doesn't want us and that we don't want as part of our society. Right. And both sides are living in a kind of illusion where ideology uh, is, 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 is trumping reality. I've had a lot of on-air conversations. This has been one of my favorites. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Yossi Klein so Halevi, a real honor. Really a, a pleasure. Real honor. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Continue your amazing work. More coming up. You're, we're in Jerusalem, and you're listening to JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. That's uh, Ohad, of course. We are in uh, Jerusalem. We are at the Inbal Hotel. We're on the beautiful and incredible Mirpeset, the porch, the patio of the presidential suite. Enjoying the hospitality of the Lieben family and of the uh, staff here at the Inbal Hotel with many, many wonderful guests. Effie Zuroff is here. He is American-born, an Israeli historian, a Nazi hunter. He has played a key role in bringing indicted Nazi and fascist war criminals to trial. He is the head of Israel's office of the Wiesenthal Center. We have heard his name for decades associated with Nazi hunting and successful Nazi hunting. And he is here in our mobile studio at JM and the AM. A pleasure to welcome you to JM and the AM. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to start with this. Are you familiar with the movie Operation Finale? Haven't seen it yet. I've read. I've read quite a bit. It's supposed to come here in the next few weeks. And uh, I saw it the week it came out. Yeah. And I'm frankly curious. I don't even know if you or would know the answer to this. I'm curious uh, what happened to the people who were essentially the informants, essentially the people living in Argentina who discovered Eichmann there. Uh, in the movie, they're arrested, and I, I, I honestly, when it comes to film and reality, who knows what's really true. 
Um, but I was curious because apparently it was uh, an elderly gentleman whose daughter was dating the son of Eichmann, and that's how the entire you know association uh, became uh, uh, became known. He transmitted a message to Israel, right? It was it was actually right. Israel uh, that that started to move ahead on this. And uh, I was, but that message didn't prompt any action by Israel. They were ambivalent when they heard about that. Not ambivalent. Um, what the person who, in other words, that person, Luther Herman, right, Luther was Herman, actually right. a person of Jewish origin, had a Jewish father, he was blind, a blind man, right? And you're right. His daughter was dating Klaus. I think it was Klaus Eichmann, right? who, believe it or not, went under his father's real name. In other words, right. if not for that, it's not clear if Eichmann would have been found. Even though t- just not long ago it became clear that the both the German uh, Secret Service and the CIA knew where he was. But before, would, not co- would not cooperate with Israel? Or they were never no, asked? No, Israel, Israel had no idea, and Israel wasn't interested initially. And basically the person who you could say uh, really pushed Israel to do it is Fritz Bauer. Right. In other words, the German Which uh, the Jewish the movie, right. social democrat who escaped Germany in '33 went to Sweden, and uh, then came back to help build the new Germany. Right. In other words, um, not a Zionist. Let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> and uh, he was the one who sent the information to the Mossad. He was the one who later went to bang on the table and tell Israel to get off its right. hysteria and to start acting. And to start acting. Yeah. And. Yeah. Um, the whole operation is the details of it. I saw the museum uh, presentation. They had a whole uh, at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. The exhibition. I s- yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, just the details and everything that had to be done in order to to get that mission accomplished was remarkable. But I guess nothing the Israelis do should surprise us, huh? I wouldn't say that, but uh, <laughs> I'd say thank God that at least they made the effort in this case, in the Eichmann case, to do what they should have done. Now. Um, about a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, um, three books that were commissioned by the Mossad about the history of their efforts to bring Nazis to justice were made public, and they're available on the Yad Vashem uh, website. And um, they haven't been published. In other words, you can't buy them in the bookstores, right. but they're available and they can be read. And I, I'm probably one of the few people who actually read all 800 pages and it's actually quite a sad story. Quite a sad story. Uh, the, there's one book about the organizational history of what they call Amal. Amal was the department set up to combat anti-Semitism and to, and to deal with Nazi war criminals. It's short for Amalek, by the way. Mm. Okay? That's a relatively short book. Then there's a, uh, another book solely on the Mengele case. And the efforts made to find Mengele, which, as we all know, were ultimately unsuccessful. Same era, by the way. That was the, the there was suspicion that they'd be able to do it in the same trip of going to get Eichmann. There was talk. There was talk. In other words, there was some some talk of perhaps trying to kidnap him as well. He right. had been in Buenos Aires. He actually went to the German embassy and uh, signed. In other words, he registered under the name Jose Mengele. And but he had already left. He had already fled Buenos Aires and initially to Paraguay and later to Brazil. Um, but. Uh, it turns out that Tzvi Aroni, who's one of, actually one of the key people in this whole story... Yeah, he's the big figure in the movie. He's the guy who came face-to-face with Mangala in 1962... In, in Buenos Aires? In Brazil. In Brazil. And the conclusion was that it would be impossible 
under the conditions that of the place that Mengele was hiding to be able to pull off an operation and get it and you know and successfully escape similar to Eichmann no, in other words, to pull off a similar operation. No, not a similar operation. In other words, one of the options was to kill him, but they felt the 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 sense, at least from what I read. Remember, this is commissioned by the Mossad, so you have to be a little careful here. And they're basically showcased to the world or to the Hebrew-speaking world in the meantime of what uh, of what they want you to know, and uh, they couldn't. The feeling was that they wouldn't be able to escape, even if they just shot him and and uh, tried to get out of there. Effie Zuroff is here. Now, we had a situation in the United States very recently. President Trump was lauded for um, spearheading the effort to, I guess, deport. That, right? deport. To deport would yeah. be the word. Yeah. To deport a... Uh, uh, Yaakov Pali. Right. Now, um, our, I assume, I mean, I know that the assumption is that the majority of those... Uh, involved in war crimes are now gone, right, at this point. No, uh, of course. I mean, obviously. only natural. So will, yeah. will this now be the last or close to the ah. last? Not by a long shot. Listen, let me tell you a story. There was a, a famous case of an Austrian uh, who was a commander of three forced labor camps in Poland, a man named uh, Josef Schwamburger, who was a notorious sadist, very, I don't know if you know, you remember the movie, The 81st Blow. Sure, I remember that movie. Okay. He was one of the, the longest one, movies I've ever seen. He's the person who gave the 80 blows to Michael Goldman, Mickey Gillard, right. who later served in the Israeli police in the Nazi war crimes unit and was among the people involved in the Eichmann trial. Reminding our listeners that the 81st Blow oh, was, was that, that nobody, they didn't believe nobody believed him. That they him, didn't right. believe him, exactly. So... He was uh, the commander of a camp in Przemysl, in Rosvadov, and in Melitz. Three different forced labor camps. He sent Jews to be murdered in Belzitz, and he also murdered Jews in the camp itself. And uh, he ran away to Argentina. He disappeared. And when the whole scandal started about the UN War Crimes uh, Commission files being closed, actually, Bibi was the Israeli ambassador UN to the UN there. That's one of the things, one of his first projects. So we made up lists of people who had files in those, in the in that archives, who were still at large, and he his name was on that list. And uh, as a result of that list and the renewed interest, and a reward of a quarter of a million marks, which was offered by the Germans, he was caught in Argentina, and he was brought to trial in Germany. He was the first Nazi war criminal put on trial in unified Germany. Okay, and someone wrote a book called The Last Nazi. Okay, you know when that book came out? 1989. <laughs> you know how many Nazis have been prosecuted since then? Plenty. A lot. All right. Nonetheless, so, we, we are getting to a point. No, that's true. <laughs> now, to be honest, perfectly, to be perfectly honest, the reason we're still involved and the reason there, there still are trials and there are recently three trials in the last few years in, in Germany is because of a very dramatic change in German prosecution policy. Until 10 years ago, if you wanted to prosecute a Nazi war criminal, you had to prove that that person had committed a specific crime against a specific victim and had done so motivated by racial hatred. And that's almost impossible to prove. But because of Demian Yuk, believe it or not. I remember that case. Okay. Because of the Demian Yuk case, and America was desperate to get right. rid of him, right. two 
I would say Hasidei Motolam, righteous Gentiles, who worked at the central office for the clarification of Nazi war crimes in Ludwigsburg, near Stuttgart, came up with a strategy that enabled his prosecution. And they basically said as follows. One was Thomas Walter, another one was Kirsten Getze. They both worked as prosecutors in Ludwigsburg, which was the central German federal agency for prosecuting Nazis. Even though they can't prosecute. They start the cases, then they hand them over to local prosecutors in the areas where the people, where the suspects live. So they said the following. Since the primary purpose of the death camps was the mass murder of innocent civilians, any person who served there can be prosecuted successfully, not for murder, but for accessory to murder. Mm -hmm. Punishment for which is five to 15 years in German law. And that was the basis for the Demian, for the Demianuk, uh, for the Demianuk uh, prosecution, which was successful. Began in October 2009, completed in May 2011. Once he was uh, convicted, the Germans started looking all over for anyone who had served in a death camp, but also anyone, apparently also any, anyone who had served in the Einsatzgruppen. I, I met with the previous head of the central office in the summer of 2011, and I said to them, listen, you know, your logic can also apply to the Einsatzgruppen. So they said, oh, we know that, and we're operating on that on that basis. But what happened was, though, as time went by, since 2011, there were periodic announcements by the Germans. They had found X number of people from Auschwitz, X number of people from Majdanek, not a word about a single person from the Einsatzgruppe. So what I did was, in, in the summer of 2014, I had in my archives, I had the names and dates of birth of 1,069 members of the Einsatzgruppen. That's, at that time, we thought it was about a third, a little more than a third of those who had served there. Apparently, that's not the case. There's more than that. But in any event, I made a list of the people born 1920 or later. 80 people, 76 men, four women. And that list was given into the German uh, ministers of justice, Heiko Maas, actually. He's today the foreign minister of Germany. And to Thomas de Mazier, who's the minister of the interior now. Why? I have to explain. Why couldn't I tell the Germans which of these people are alive? Right. Because of something called Datenschutz. Datenschutz is data protection. And I jokingly call it the Heiliger Datenschutz in Germany. In other words, this is like a holy concept. Now, why is it a holy concept? Because of the Holocaust. Sure. Because of the Third Reich. Right. Okay, who's benefiting? They don't want anybody talking. Who's benefiting from sure. it now? The Nazis. Right. So, in any event, so uh, I gave them the list. 16, 17 months later, they told me that eight people on that list are of interest to them. Okay, do you have any more information? In some cases, I had more information. In other cases, I didn't have. And we gave it, we answered. Every so often, I'm writing them, asking them what's going on. No information. Mm -hmm. In other words, they like to get information. They like to give information. Right. So basically, what I did was I teamed up with uh, ARD, which is German Channel 1, who have a program called Contrast, Contrast in German, in other words, which is uh, the equivalent of 60 Minutes. Right. Magazine I, show. Right. Ex investigative show. Right. So I gave them the names, and they found and interviewed two of the people whom they found, alive and well, who had been in Einsatzgruppe C, who were Babi And then it turns, it turns out that a third one was also alive. In other words, these people are alive and well, living in Germany. And now they can be brought to justice. Are so they going to be? Listen, that, first of all, I'm the only Jew in the world who prays for the good health of Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> okay? 
that's a very important prayer of mine. Okay? These people... I, because you believe just, it's never too late for justice. No, of course not. Of course not. But the fact that I mean, they have to make it. You right. know what I mean? They got to get if, there. If they croak, that's it. That's the end. We lost them. And right. it's a shame. That was the whole thing with Demyanyuk. Nobody believed he was still alive. No, listen. The Americans knew all along that he was faking. So, for example, you know... I don't know. I was in Munich. I saw the sessions of the trial. Some of them, not all of them, obviously. And, you know, he did everything possible to convince the public that he doesn't have a clue what's going on. Right. No one knows, or very few people know, that at the, that at the end of each of these sessions, it was a completely different person. Gets up from the gurney <laughs> or from the wheelchair, starts joking around with the people around him. So I always said, you know, if there was an Academy Award for the best performance by a Nazi war criminal in that year, he definitely would have gotten it. What a distinction, huh? Effie Zuroff's <laughs> here. Nazi hunter, works at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Uh, all right, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, it's never too late for justice. Uh, but obviously certain people in the state of Israel, especially during the early years of the state of Israel, had an attitude, uh, I mean, it was depicted in the movie you just alluded to when we were discussing Eichmann and Mengele, mm. had an attitude that, you know, enough is enough, World War II is behind us, mm. and we must continue forward building this state. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not asking whether that attitude is justified or not, but do you understand that attitude, especially when we do know that in all of our families, there are many, many older people that we grew up with who wanted nothing to do with memories of that era and certainly wanted to be behind them. What well, do you say to that? I say to that that the survivors had the privilege of putting it behind them. We don't think that about the, the Nazis. Did not. The victims did not. And uh, in that respect, there's no excuse or explanation to justify ignoring Nazi war criminals and letting them live their lives in peace and tranquility. And yet officials of the State of Israel believe that felt that that it was justified listen you could ask the same que- you can ask that same question although it's it's very different in certain respects about the reparations right okay so this is you know uh, which many grand grandmothers had to be convinced to take because of the right, right. and there are people who didn't take it in right. principle they didn't take it and uh, there were people like Shalansky who walked to, into the Knesset with a bomb right. <laughs> not that he wanted to use it but uh <laughs> Right. No, but listen, <laughs> listen. The, thi- the same thing. This brings me very naturally into the next next subject, which is the whole issue of Holocaust distortion today in Eastern Europe. Right. Where Israel well, in, in the whole world? But no, 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 no. We're talking about a specific phenomenon in Eastern post-communist Eastern Europe, where they don't deny that the Shoah took place. They simply are trying to do a couple of things. One is to hide their own participation. Participation of their own people. Now, you have to understand that only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis involve participation in systematic mass murder. Vichy police did not kill the French Jews. Right. They helped kill them. Right. Accessory to murder. Right. Sent them to be killed. Right. Belgium, Holland, Norway, Greece, Italy, all the same, all right? Similar. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Belarus, Croatia, the locals were actively involved in the murders. Okay, now, so they want to hide or minimize that involvement. That involvement, number one. Number two, they want to. They're claiming that communist crimes were just as bad as Nazi crimes, and that communist crimes are genocide. That's very important because if communist crimes are genocide, that means that Jews committed genocide. Right. Jews working for the KGB. Uh-huh. Okay, 
Now, not out of any uh, affiliation or, uh, you know, uh, connection to the Jewish people. These are people who, in a sense, left the community. Independence. Okay, but if Jews committed genocide, how can Jews complain about our people committed genocide? In other words, if everybody's guilty, nobody's guilty. Now, so just to give you one example, one of the things they're trying to do now, they're trying to push, and I'm talking about countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they're trying to push for a joint Memorial Day for all the victims of totalitarian regimes, which will be observed on August 23rd. August 23rd is the day of the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying, you uh, innocent or clueless observer think that Nazi Germany bears the sole responsibility for 50 million people killed in World War II. Well, think again. So in other words, they're comparing the country that conceived, planned, built, and operated the largest mass murder factory in human history, Auschwitz-Birkenau, with the country, with all its flaws, and I don't want to in any way, uh, you know, minimize Holocaust, uh, communist crimes, but the country whose army liberated that mass murder factory stopped the mass murder. So, and needless to say, if such a plan will be accepted, then it's bye-bye International Holocaust Day, because what do you need it for? You have something more January inclusive. January at the UN. January 27th, you know. You have it more inclusive, more victims, more people will be happy. I mean, you can't have endless Memorial Days, Right. So this is a very serious thing, and I'm very sad and frustrated to say that Israel has ignored this phenomenon because of political, uh, economic, security interests. And it's a real shame because, as my father, my late father used to always point out, as we know, this was a crime against Jewish people. I, others right. others were killed, right? but this no, was specifically listen, a crime the, against the Jewish people. The point is, why did the Shoah take place to the scope that it did? Because the Jewish people didn't have a country right. whose priority was to save Jews, right? right? Nowhere to go. Now, today we have a country, okay? Right. And that country sees itself... First of all, as the defender of the Jewish people. Second of all, as the heir of the victims. So, Mimanovshach, you know, this is something that we that we have to do, and we're not doing it. Effie Zoroff is here. I could speak to you all day. There's two philosophical questions I must get to. One second. I have to say one thing. Bibi was just in, in Lithuania. Right. On a state visit. Right. And it wasn't bad enough that he didn't call them out on being basically the locomotive pulling this double genocide theory and, and, and the Holocaust distortion. He praised them for the way they're commemorating the Shoah. So think how the people here in Israel, the survivors, people like me who are fighting tooth and nail against the Lithuanians and against the lies feel when something like that happens. It's terrible, terribly frustrating. Philosophical question number one. Okay. And I believe me, I understand your frustration. All of our frustration should be with that. Is there any difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? No. There Anti-Zionism th- is a new form of anti-Semitism. In Sem- other words, anti-Semitism exists for hundreds of years. It is. There was adopted, no it, it was adopted different forms. Okay? In other words, today... Hatred of the Jew, because he has a different religion and different language and he has a different holidays, is out because of the Shoah. Okay? You, that's passe. So what are you going to do and if you hate a Jew? <laughs> you have to find a new way to hate a Jew. And, this and, new they, way, did. and, they, and they did. Finally, <laughs> I don't know if you have a personal opinion on this issue, but if you do, I'm very curious what it is. Um, many students, in fact, many students in this country, spend part of their time away from the U.S. while they're visiting Israel, going to Europe, 
visit concentration camps, etc., etc. There are people, especially those in the prior generation, who did not like the fact and still don't like the fact that we, as a Jewish community, are supporting financially efforts in Poland, etc. Your opinion? Definitely, I'm in favor of the trips, 100%. The sad part of the trips is that people have to go to Poland to strengthen their Jewish identity. That's the sad part. But it's very effective. And you see conclusively that those trips help strengthen Jewish identity, help in the fight against assimilation, against intermarriage. That's the, that's the real challenge now. Because we're very strong when we're being attacked and we're being threatened to be killed. Right. Then our Jewish identity skyrockets. But in times of peace and in Listen, times of comfort... Judaism, Jewish identity shouldn't be built around suffering and sorrows, Okay. But they're definitely a part of who we are and, and our identity. And uh, <laughs> this, this is one of the things, one of the tools that has proven to be very, very effective. I wouldn't cancel them at all. I would add that every effort is made to limit the financial <laughs> investment or you know, spending right. in these countries. And, and uh, they try and bring the food from Israel and all sorts of other things. So, Bemet, it's not... It's, I wouldn't, under any circumstances, you know what, listen, let me tell you something. I spent the last 10 years of my Milouim, of my army service, I was uh, in the educational corps, okay? And I used to serve like 30, 30, 40 days a year giving lectures all over Israel to the soldiers. And I spoke to all, every type of soldier imaginable, the most intelligent, the least intelligent, the most educated, the least in- educated. Ashkenazim, Sfaradim, you know, Mesorotim, Datiim, Chilonim, everything. And I, I was pleasantly surprised by two things. One is that the kids, the soldiers, knew a lot more than I thought. They knew a lot. And the second thing was that there was tremendous empathy across the board. Didn't matter, Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Datiim, Chilonim, Mesorotim, whatever, were the victims of the Shoah and the subject. And the reason for that is, number one, that they made the subject of the Shoah a obligatory for Bagrut and the trips to Poland. Proof positive. Okay. How many years are you living in Israel? 48. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's quite a stretch of time. And are you still going to be uh, hunting Nazis? Listen, we have a project right now. Okay, after we successfully found these three people living in Germany right. who were in Einsatz Group of C, who were at Babi Yar, okay, and as a star of the Shoah, I know that the information I had in my files, in my archives, which was created for a completely different reason, by the way, but that's another story, is only a small part of the information. In other words, the, I, had, I had 1,200, no, actually, let's say 1,300 names, and in the 1,069 cases, I had dates of birth as well. Okay, so those 1,069, I originally thought was more than one-third. But after consulting with experts on the Einstein's we realized that the number was actually much higher. And right now, as we speak, we have researchers going through the archives to try and find as many names and dates of birth as possible with the hope of finding other such people that can be brought to just listen. The minute... Any of these people was brought to justice. By the way, November 6th, there's a trial uh, opening in Munster of a guard in Stutthof. Okay? We found 20 survivors for them, most of them living in Israel. Wow. And um, the minute that happens, all these people start 
making in their pants, you'll excuse me. Okay, in other words, they don't know when the knock on the door is going to come, if it's going to come, and their pleasant, relatively pleasant, tranquil, uh, golden years turn very black, which is exactly the way it should be. Right. Effie Zoroff, a real <laughs> honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Collect the vote. An amazing journey to Jerusalem, and this is one of the reasons why. Get to speak to people like Effie Zoroff, who's the head of Israel's office of the Wiesenthal Center. We have more coming up. You are listening to an amazing and incredible Tuesday morning edition at JM in the AM.
the uh, Simcha Liner Project Relax album here at uh, JM and the AM. It's a Tuesday morning broadcast. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the Lieben Presidential Suite at the Inbal Hotel. We thank the Inbal for their hospitality. Um, we thank them very much, in fact. They are our headquarters when we are in Jerusalem. And we thank them for all their assistance. Some great guests so far this morning. More coming up, of course. Plus, we're here tomorrow in Jerusalem. 
between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to join us. Got some great comments on the app, I noticed. We go to the um, NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone. The comments started early this morning when our good friend Dafyomi Yid says he knows a lot about Zebra Medical. That was from the John Medved interview. Right. Uh, Stacy Siegel wrote, just get me one of those cars and I'll drive. I assume that's <laughs> a, reference, a reference to the uh, driverless cars that John Medved was talking about. Listener Yona, good morning from New York City. Love the interview. I'm Yisrael Chai. Thank you. Listener Tina says, I watched a documentary that tracked three kids that came from an Orthodox background and embarked on their gap year in Israel. It opened with a clip from your radio show from 2005. Nice touch. Was that a uh, movie about the seagull triplets? No, it was oh. a real, real. It was an actual documentary that took place. Someone showed this to me recently when my kids discovered it. That's amazing. And they have a whole segment of the family listening to JM and the AM. And, the majo- and I remember now them asking permission of the radio station to use it. And, of course, the majority of it is the weather forecast. I'm like, oh, this is the segment of JMD. Swinging a mess. I mean, give me a break. That's what they take from it. They didn't take Modani? Make, the whole thing made no sense. Okay. Um, bakery Guy says, good morning to everyone. Great job as usual. Then we have another good morning. We have a top of the morning. And we have listener Seema, who's uh, tuned in. Wow, that was an amazing interview with Mr. Zuroff. Yeah, in fact, it was. And Seema, thank you. And best to you and Rabin and everybody in the entire family. And we say hello to everybody who's 6,000 miles away and those who are here in this area. Thank you very much for um, uh, tuning in and being part of our JM and AM broadcast. Uh, Miriam Wallach just handed me an article that says archaeologists have unearthed a 2,000-year-old Hebrew inscription that's inscribed with the word Jerusalem. How do you like that? We find that out during our trip to the Holy City. Um, Our community calendar is chock full of so many amazing things that are happening, a lot of great events that are going on. I want to remind everybody that uh, starting tonight, the NCSY Summer Expo begins. Tonight, 7.30 until 9.30 at the Young Israel of West Hempstead, and then Wednesday night, tomorrow night, at the Young Israel of Woodmere, again both at 7.30. Information summer.ncsy.org, summer.ncsy.org. Tonight is the Teach NYS annual dinner. Happening in the New York City at Pensy, to Pennsylvania Plaza in New York, 33rd and 7th in Manhattan. Information, it's uh, NYS, excuse me, it's T, uh, teachnys at turbovote.org, teachnys at turbovote.org. Um, check out our community calendar online, go to the JMM or actually go to the NahumSingle.com website and check out our community calendar online, a lot of stuff there that you'll find interesting. I want to thank um, all of our guests so far this morning. We have more coming up and a very special Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM. Uh, a lot of our other programming is going to be taken care of by um, by the time we leave, meaning that Miriam L. Wallach is planning on presenting a That's Life program this Thursday. It'll be recorded here in Jerusalem. Um, Yoni Pollock is uh, is uh, going to be recording his bite-sized program recorded here in Jerusalem. That's for Wednesday tomorrow after JM and the AM. Naomi Nachman is going to be uh, uh, in the executive lounge tomorrow, and she'll be recording a table for two. She's here spending time at the Inbal. Uh, and what am I forgetting? Am I for- Say it again? And our live lunch broadcast for Thursday is uh, supposed to be our impressions of Jerusalem uh, being recorded either later today, tomorrow, or both. We'll figure out exactly the schedule. And that's going to be happening Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We call it the Thursday Live Lunch. More coming up. It's JM in the AM with Shim Kramer.
Jim Kramer at JM in the AM. Just got a comment from listener Devora on our app saying that uh, Nahum, it seems you're in Israel every other day. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but she did say she's never been to Israel, but feels she's always here when we broadcast through the NSN app from the Holy Land, which is really nice. We're here in Jerusalem at the Inbal Hotel, overlooking the incredible old city of Jerusalem. Rabbanit Sally Mayer is here from Oratora Stone. Um... Rosh Midrashah of Midrash at Lindenbaum's Overseas Program, discussing Jewish education, scholarship, and leadership for women here in Israel, and all that Oratora Stone is doing to further these initiatives. It is a great pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, Oratora Stone has gone through some changes. I shouldn't say changes, adjustments over the last few months. Uh, we are major Rabbi Riskin fans, as we, as we have been for about 50 years. We are major Rabbi Brander fans for a drop less of time than that. How is the partnership, the association between the two been going so far? Baruch Hashem, it's been going incredibly well. Thank God. Uh, two amazing, uh, amazing people, amazing leaders and role models now coming together, taking Ortura Stone further and uh, taking Bezrat Hashem, women's leadership and learning and spiritual growth further as well. Women's Torah study has always been a challenging topic in the Jewish world. Would you agree? <laughs> um, I think so, but I think, thank God, uh, so much progress has been right. made. Right. Well, my point is that this is not, people think this is a modern, you know, debate or a modern, this is something that through every century of Jewish history, if you explore it closely, you will find there's always been discussion about women's role in the area of academia. For sure. For sure, absolutely. And uh, R. Stone has been at the forefront now in the 21st century to make sure that women have a place both in the world of academia and the world of leadership out there in the religious communities. Uh, you, uh, your position as Rosh Midrashah, Midrash at Lindenbaum's overseas program, deals with how many different communities overseas? Oh, many different communities from all across America, from uh, west to east and everywhere in the middle, as well as Canada, England, Australia, we have students from France, Italy. With the goal being, in your supervisory role, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Trying to uh, give our students, uh, who are, thank God, the brightest, um, at, to give them a chance to really learn Torah on a very deep level, and also to grow spiritually and religiously, and, uh, and really become leaders in their communities. Whether it be in Jewish education, whether it be in, uh, in, in their communities, whether it be on campus and in the future, and that they should uh, be able to inspire the next generation as well. And um, this is happening, as you indicated earlier, in so many different communities around the U.S. and other countries. Um, how, has, how has the leadership role of women in these areas, those who are delivering lectures, those who are you know, making inroads in the world of Jewish education, how has it been accepted by the greater Jewish community? I must say that Baruch Hashem, it has really been accepted tremendously well because I think that authenticity and, uh, and true, true knowledge and true commitment shines through wherever you are. So it becomes less about slogans and more about actually making an impact. And I think that uh, women have been, uh, been making an impact and uh, thank God, enriching their families and communities, which is what we're all hoping for. Rabbanit Sally Mayer is here, Artura Stone. You have seen women 
from your institution become principals, yes. uh, become leaders of different departments, especially those relating to Jewish education. Uh, and you've seen women under your leadership become published authors. You've seen a tremendous growth in scholarship, uh, real religious scholarship coming from you know the the uh, coming from uh, Jewish women in our community. Absolutely, and I think that that's an area where we can really grow. Please God, uh, at Midrash Lindenbaum, if you walk into the Beit Midrash, it's this incredibly vibrant place, full of. Of, of Israeli young women who are about to serve their country in the army or Shirut Lumi, full of overseas women who are learning and growing, some of them staying, some of them going back to their communities. You have adult women who are learning to be the scholars and leaders of the next generation. It's this incredibly vibrant place that draws you in and uh, and makes you see possibilities that, uh, that I think that, thank God, the Jewish community is only... Uh, is only growing from, and uh, our goal is to see these these our students uh, and our, our colleagues uh, just continue to to grow in their learning, in their scholarship, in their commitment, in their inspiration, and uh, and be able to give that to the rest of the world through publishing, as you mentioned, through teaching, through role modeling. Yeah, I think teaching and again the positions we discussed in Jewish education uh, had been you know those areas had been advanced uh, to a degree. The publishing area, I think, is the latest phenomenon, where it's just amazing to see how many women are taking uh, uh, taking uh, you know prominent roles in the world of Jewish publishing. Yes, and Bezrat Hashem, it should, it should really continue. It's yeah. a natural outgrowth of having a certain level of scholarship, um, and uh, it's, it is one of our goals to uh, to help promote that even further. Uh, Rabbanit Sally Mayer is here, or Torah Stone. Uh, is there an American program? Are there students who uh, post high school seek out Midrash at Lindenbaum uh, to spend their years, uh, you know, between high school and college? Many students seek out Midrash at Lindenbaum's overseas program uh, for ev- for all that we offer for the incredibly high level learning, for the religious growth and inspiration, for the caring of the faculty and staff, uh, for the Israeli integration. We have an amazing opportunity for the students who can learn in a program that's set up for students who come from overseas side by side with an incredible program as well for students who are Israelis who are here and who are happy to have the have have the overseas students it, with them in their classes, living with them in the dorms, going to their homes for Shabbat. And that incredible opportunity to have Israeli integration as well as an, a program built for overseas students is something that uh, that that is just is unparalleled. Something an amazing opportunity. Do you visit some of the amazing women outside of Israel who are doing these great things in these different communities? Absolutely, absolutely. You see them up close and personal. What was the mo- what was the most recent trip you've taken? At which communities did you observe? Well, I was recently I recently had the privilege to be a scholar in residence at the Jewish Center in oh, Manhattan, nice. where uh, my husband and I. Uh, worked and taught uh, before we made Aliyah, uh, and it was beautiful. They have a, uh, um, a resident scholar there uh, as well, as well as the wonderful rabbis there, and uh, it was wonderful to see, uh, to see how that community has, uh, has also grown in, uh, in the area of learning, women's learning. And as you said earlier, it's replicated in many, many places around the world. Um, well, Rabbanit Sally Mayer, we appreciate you visiting. Our best regards, everybody, at Oratora Stone, and you are doing amazing work when it comes to women's role in Jewish education, that is to be commended. Thank we, you very much for having me. It was really a privilege to be with you. I today. appreciate that. More coming up. You're listening to a Tuesday edition of JM in the AM. We are in Jerusalem at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. 
at the presidential presidential suite, uh, Mir Peset. And we will continue with more coming up if you keep it right here at JM in the AM. trying to understand how, while our people flood back in from all the nations, and after centuries of tears, we see you, Hashem, in everything, and await your warm embrace of full redemption. (laughs) 
JM&AM with Yisrael Bil Vavod. You know the song, everybody. It starts, of course, with our good friend Simon Jacob, the chairman of the Jewish Unity Initiative, and it continues with uh, Ohad and with the Kinderlach and with Itzik Dadya, an FDD production that we're very, very proud of. Glad to have had a small uh, role in the entire thing. And with us in Jerusalem, believe it or not, we found him. We went searching in Yemin Moshe and we found him. Among the wineries. <laughs> yeah, we went through every winery in Israel and we finally, finally got him. That's Simon Jacob, of course, our amazing friend and chairman. Simon Shalom from Jerusalem. Look at this. It's such a pleasure uh, being interviewed in person. So it's a, especially in Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a real pleasure. A remarkable mobile studio, huh, with this weather and this view. Best place in the world. That's for sure. And your Chag was wonderful, you told me, Baruch Hashem. It was incredible. Thank Absolutely you. incredible. You saw Super. a lot of people from the United States visiting Israel during that time? I saw a lot of people from the entire world visiting Israel at that time. A real Aliyah Larega. Uh, it was 100%. It was incredible. More than I have ever seen before. I have great news for you, by the way. The song we just played, Yisrael yeah. Bilvavot, approaching 78,000 views on YouTube in these yeah. a couple of short weeks. Pretty amazing, huh? It's it's really, really special to me. I, I jokingly at the beginning when we made this, said, well, you know, it's not going to be anything unless we get 100,000 views. And I was really joking. I thought, you know, if we get 7,000 views, it'll be incredible. And now that we are uh, approaching 78. 78,000 views, that's crazy. It but thank God is. it's great. A lot of people enjoying it. It's a great song celebrating Israel 70. And as you pointed out, even more importantly, celebrating the great gift that the land of Israel is to the Jewish people from yep. the one above. Yep. And you yep. and many other Jewish leaders have always said we can never stop thanking God for it. So that song really helps people do that. So call it a vote to you. That's the goal. Uh, so th- whenever we speak to you, we speak about Israel. Then, of course, we drift into the uh, topic of kosher wine. You just received a <laughs> good piece of news about one of your friendly wineries here in Israel. Um, one of the wineries who actually I visited last week with some people. We had a, a really great time with a winemaker, Amichai Luria, uh, who is just amazing. Um, his uh, Shiloh um, Secret Reserve uh, cab. Got a 93, um, you know, got a 93 rating from the wine enthusiast, and uh, I want to congratulate him for that. It's, it's really great. Pretty good grade, huh? It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and you know, as well. And this wasn't supposed to be an interview about wine, but um, <laughs> but the truth is that there isn't a person who, whenever somebody is asking me about, well, what should I try? What should I do? Uh, I always. That Shiloh um, Secret Reserve is my go-to wine, and I have never heard anybody come back and say something negative about it. Well, I will so. s- I will say that uh, that even though we don't uh, always uh, plan on speaking about wine, when it's Rosh Chodesh, yeah, especially Rosh Chodesh, right, which a lot of people yeah. utilize to have different wine parties around the kosher world. When it's mm-hmm. Rosh Chodesh, we have a special affinity toward kosher wine, and you'll be enjoying, I'm sure, some great wine. Uh, during this Rosh Chodesh, as you did during the Chag, yep. enjoying a lot of great wine. Um, so there's the story. The story is that uh, we are in Jerusalem, and uh, under your leadership, we get to go to some amazing places, and we'll keep everybody up to date in terms of our plans regarding the Jewish Unity Initiative, which, uh, please, God. which please God, continues to be an amazing force out there. Uh, the song, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen the video yet or haven't heard the song, Yisrael Bilvavo, check it out. It's one that Simon and I and many other people hope will be taught in schools this year. At some point, if you're a music teacher, if you're on your way to school listening to this, and you're a music teacher in one of the elementary schools out there or a choir in a high school, make this a priority. It's a great group song and a wonderful opportunity, again, to call attention to the beauty of the land of Israel. So one one of the things, it's it's 
it's really important and we really want people to spread the word and to share it. Uh, it's available on um, YouTube and right. there's a lot of, you know, a lot of links to it from the Nakam Siegel uh, app and from all over. Right. So it, I would certainly recommend looking at that and, and please spreading it because, you know, you're our voice to your our outreach. We don't have a whole marketing team out there to uh, spread this and to hit 70, 78,000 uh, views just by actual word of mouth and what's going on is phenomenal. So yeah, I'm Hashem. really happy about it. Baruch Hashem. So everybody out there, take a look and certainly take a listen. And uh, Simon, uh, one last thing you <laughs> you commented so rightfully earlier when John Medved, after he had completed his uh, presentation wow. here, wow. you said, wow, That's he sounds like me. And, and what, you wow. meant, what you meant by that was sometimes people don't realize that we are in the midst of one of the greatest and incredible eras of Jewish history. And when we say Reishit Tzmichat Gulateinu, I don't even know if it's Reishit anymore. We are in the midst of Tzmichat Gulateinu. You can't help but feel it here. And to hear a business leader who right. everybody talks about <laughs> and says, you know, all of this, he's into, you know, this deal and that deal and all the rest of the things. Wow, he sounded like uh, a prophet this morning. Um, he's really convinced that um, this is, we're, we're, we're seeing it happen in front of our faces. The and world we are. coming to I Israel. Mean, the, it's absolutely amazing to see these world leaders coming. And that was one of your initial pitches when it yeah, came to the 100%. song. Was that, and you actually named yeah. countries. Look at this. 100%. Everyone's coming from all these look, different areas of the world. Look, China. We have leader of China coming in two weeks. He announced. Right. He, he said it. I, and India, you always and point And India, that. the United States. Europe. You know, uh, all of Europe and what have you. Listen, to be quite honest, there isn't a country that we listed that doesn't have a city, besides Germany maybe, right. that doesn't have a city that has more people in it than our entire country. <laughs> right. Okay? Than the entire state of Israel. <laughs> and these leaders are coming from all over to see what's going on because they see that something is, something unbelievable is going on here. And you can't help but notice it. Something and, magical And it's, it's totally special, and it's the Kaddish Baruch Hu, to be quite honest. I mean, that's where we differ a little bit. John is very into the tech, and he said, look, they're all coming for our tech. They're actually coming for God. They right. have tech, too. But they're coming to see something, and we have to start getting on the bandwagon and, and telling people That's one of your important messages. On. Yeah. Kalakavod, Simon, thank you so much for joining me here. Toda, toda, toda. Thank I know you, you get special much. pride when we're in Jerusalem. So. I, I love you being here. So it's a pleasure. Thank uh, you. Bridging the gap between Israel and the diaspora. That's one of the reasons we do these visits to Israel. And I'm glad you're tuned in and listening to JM and the AM on this Tuesday morning. Plenty more tomorrow, don't forget. That's right. We have more guests coming up, including Caroline Glick, who's scheduled to join us. Uh, but tomorrow as well, a full slate of amazing guests coming up between 6 and 9 a.m. right here at JM and the AM. Oh, Shane, 
JM in the AM. We are here in Jerusalem, a uh, Lieben presidential suite on the Mirpeset, on the porch, on the patio, overlooking the old city of Jerusalem, enjoying day two of an incredible three-day journey to Israel. A dream come true when Barry Lieben and Nahum Siegel decided that they will be in Israel at the same time and enjoy the incredible warmth and view and amazing uh, everything you're seeing, all this amazing uh, sights and sounds together here at JM in the AM. Look how emotional you're getting, Barry, just thinking about... I'm wiping back the tears. <laughs> just thinking about how we've got ahead and accomplished our dream. And a big thank you to Steve Leibowitz for helping us produce these amazing shows. We've had some great guests this week, some amazing guests, and it's much appreciated. And Ronnie Timzit is here. He is general manager of the Inbal Hello. Hotel. I take this opportunity to thank you for your hospitality again. You know that the Inbal is our headquarters when we come to Jerusalem. So thank it's you very, very much. always our pleasure. I very much appreciate that, and uh, I can tell you that the renovation, the addition, uh, has really made this hotel look even more modern than it has in the past. Yes, we had uh, two years of uh, renovation and adding also new rooms. Uh, that's uh, definitely very exciting. We opened the rooms for uh, Sukkot, and we had already uh, the feedbacks of, the, of our guests. People are happy? Are very happy. Baruch very Hashem. Happy. And uh, it's a big change, and uh, it's a major. The, the we change also all the uh, public uh, areas, areas yeah. Yeah. and that's uh, a big change for uh, for the hotel. And I think that uh, people were very very happy. People that were here for uh, years, returning guests, uh, and we are very happy that they are happy. Yeah, and including in the public area, the beautiful new lobby, mm-hmm. which is really lovely. It's the first thing people see, obviously, mm-hmm. when they walk into the hotel, and it makes a great. First impression. So Ronnie Timzit is the general manager here at the Inbal, and we thank him certainly. Has the uh, has the presidential suite ever been this active like it's been over the last couple of days? No, Barry has a <laughs> special energy, and uh, his energy is uh, is reflecting on the old. It's uh, contagious, uh, yeah. huh? It's uh, contagious. Yes, that's, that's something that is uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Thank you, my friend. But I said it. I said it yesterday when we opened the show, and I. You know, I have a long history in the travel world, and I'm very proud to say that I only come to Jerusalem when this hotel and this suite is available, but especially this hotel with my friend Ronnie. I know there's historical places people think of when they talk hotels, but this is a hotel that makes you part of Jerusalem. The Hamish atmosphere, the wonderful staff, the, the leadership inspired by Ronnie. This is the place, if you're coming to Jerusalem, you have to stay. I guarantee you'll be welcome like family if you come to the Imbal Hotel. You agree with me, Nachum? I certainly agree. We have that experience every time we're here. We feel like we're at home. Uh, they have a great clientele. They have well, wonderful let's people. Let's ask a real expert. Oh, who's that? Cole. Cole is here. Cole hey there, Cole. Is this the place to stay? <laughs> yes. There you go. You want to come back here next trip? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Cole. <laughs> Ronnie, that's Cole, it. Cole is my best friend. <laughs> he is Ronnie is. your best friend, too? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got to talk louder, Cole. Yeah. Well, now we found out. They're in the presidential suite because of Cole. <laughs> Nothing to do with Barry. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. It's all to do with Cole. <laughs> so this is quite an amazing place. Everyone's welcome to now come I and enjoy. the new restaurant will be ready soon. Yes, we'll open a new restaurant, I believe, on the 15th of uh, November. Mm. We are beginning all the trials and uh, with the new chefs, we, we took a company that will be advising us for this opening, doing the whole opening. 
that the uh, people that are the chefs that are, uh, are uh, owning the Mona and Diana uh, restaurants and uh, we are doing with them this opening. I, I think that restaurateurs are the ones that know the best how to do mm. people happy in the restaurant and true. we'll do it with them. All right, very nice. So they're going to be it's doing meat that. restaurant. A meat restaurant. Nakamania, we're meat guys. We're going to be clients of that restaurant. We'll be clients <laughs> you big can, time. Big customers. Cole, of the do you like meat? <laughs> yes. What's your favorite meat? <laughs> steak. Right. So we'll put a steak. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. In Bal Hotel, everybody, it's very simple. Whether it's holiday time, whether it's January yeshiva break, whether it's Thanksgiving weekend, which is now a very, very big yes. weekend here yes. because a lot of people come to check out schools with their kids during Thanksgiving Definitely. week. They take a couple of days off plus Thanksgiving. They have a whole week in Israel. Chanukah, obviously very, very big. There's a lot of mm-hmm. different periods of time that are extra special in Israel. And at the Inbal, it makes it even more special. On behalf of Nachum and myself, we want to thank you, Ronnie, and your staff, all your staff, especially Nachum, the other Nachum, mm-hmm. for the hospitality, the graciousness, and how much you went out of your way to take care of Nachum and his people. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we, in turn, thank you as well for your hospitality and for making this another yeah. wonderful visit to Jerusalem. Always happy to have you here. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Kolakavod. And we will speak again. When? I don't know. We'll let Ronnie know when the next time is that we're showing up to the Inbal Hotel. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think he's ever shocked to get those emails that we're showing up. <laughs> it's going to take him a while to recover from this. Huh? Um, Barry, also, I will take this opportunity because, uh, unfortunately, you will not be able to be on the air with us tomorrow, which is something I still can't get over. That you won't be able to be here tomorrow. I, I, w- I wish you would. Sadly, we're flying home tomorrow. Which yes. is very, uh, very... Uh, I'll be here in spirit with very you. Very difficult for us. But to help me thank Steve Liebowitz for helping us out A this great week. job, Steve. A great job. You've earned every cent of your salary. <laughs> That's for sure. One shirt and a hat. Did Barry go visit the new facility yet or not? No. He has not No, I didn't make it. That'll be next trip. Okay. So next time But tonight we're going for a gala party. Nice. We will be taking out two years worth of the Big Blue Lions. Oh. Celebrating our consecutive, consecutive winning of the Holy Land Bowl. Correct? Absolutely. They are a dynasty in in Israeli football. We're the equivalent of the Patriots. The equivalent of the Patriots, not of the Giants. Not of the Giants. And uh, no doubt, uh, well, it sounds like they may either be. These fellows. Uh, yeah, it sounds gonna be, like it's going to be a pretty big bill tonight. It sounds like they're they're, they're into dinner. <laughs> and we want to like. thank you, Nachum, for picking up that bill. Well, my pleasure. Are you kidding? <laughs> what I won't do for American football in Israel. Come on. This is going to be about ninety football players. Ninety eating. Steak. And we're having an eating contest. Is there a facility large enough to house them? Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> we certainly will. Well, I'll tell you that Na- we almost went to the whole place. We almost rented the whole place. We almost Cole's rented the whole place. That would have been a good strategy, actually. Cole, will you be there tonight? You're not going to miss. He's already wearing his new sweatshirt. You're not. That's the Lions. That's, that's the, the Lions. Look at the back. Show it, Cole. There we go. These are the champions. The Lions, two years in a row, the Israel Bowl. Israel Bowl 10 and Israel Bowl 11. Undefeated this year. Incredible. So far, so good, huh? The only thing we're missing is you at center. Nah, come on. I wouldn't be able to handle it anymore. Come on, Barry. <laughs> I retired long ago, I don't understand. you know? <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, Steve Liebowitz at the helm of the Israel Football League, but much more importantly, helping us produce these incredible shows with great guests from Israel this week, and I thank you. And I also take this opportunity to thank Bobby Brown. The fact that you are here, I know that you're here, obviously, because some of your best friends of your entire life are here, but just the fact that you're hanging around this broadcast for me is an amazing honor. So thank you very, very much. It's an honor to be around.
Tadarabai. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. More coming up. Caroline Glick is scheduled to join us before the end of this broadcast. That's going to be just a couple of minutes from now if you keep it right here at JM in the AM.
JM in the AM. There you go. Ari Goldwag. We're live in Jerusalem here on a JM in the AM Tuesday. Many of you are familiar with the work of Caroline Glick. Her, um, her CV, her bio is so long that there's no way in the world I would get through all of it, but she is one of the most incredible columnists out there. Senior contributor and chief columnist for the Jerusalem Post, appears in many other places as well, of course, and is one of the most uh, incredible and outspoken commentators out there. Uh, also, and I'll, I'm going to ask her about this, she founded, which uh, I believe at the time was one of the most effective, one of the most effective Hasbara uh, programs around. That was LATMA, the Hebrew language satirical media criticism website, served as editor-in-chief of the site till it stopped operating in 2015. Caroline Glick, thank you so much for joining us at JM in the AM. Uh, it's great being on your program. I appreciate that. We're in Jerusalem, and we are uh, we are having an amazing time, and I'm sure you would recommend to everybody listening, get to Jerusalem as soon as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. There's no place like it on Earth. Uh, you are uh, you are such a prolific writer, incredible columnist. We have a packet that's handed out to everybody in our synagogue each and every Friday when people come into shul, and it's a packet of important articles of the week. And invariably, your weekly article in the Jerusalem Post is included each and every time. And <laughs> trust me, that's quite a compliment. I appreciate it. Uh, it's really amazing. Tell me about the uh, current situation here in Israel politically. Are we headed toward new elections or not? Well, it seems fairly likely because, um, you know, we're, the elections are scheduled for November, and we've sort of been in a lame duck kind of governmental situation for uh, several months. And um, there are two issues that, uh, due to a Supreme Court uh, decisions, have to be legislated in December. One uh, revolves around uh, the conversions law, and the other one revolves around the draft law. And when you're in an atmosphere of elections, uh, nobody is interested in compromising because it'll make their constituents angry with them. So the chance of there being a compromise and elections being averted uh, goes down with each passing day. So conversion. We're likely going to see. We'll, we'll likely see elections sometime between January and February. It seems. So as much as we comment uh, in the United States about kicking the uh, can down the road when it comes to certain items, when it comes to conversion and draft laws in this country. Uh, it's a, it's certainly a, an appropriate expression. They just keep delaying things so that they don't upset their own constituency. Well, in a way, it makes sense. I mean, to try to force an issue um, by court decision is a little bit stupid. I mean, these are sociological issues more than anything else. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that you can't say by judicial fiat, okay, now you have to determine a, the end point of the situation that uh, has to do with um, very basic things about how people define themselves in the world. And it's just one more example of Supreme Court overreach in Israel and how it destabilizes Israeli politics and Israeli society as a whole. Does nation-state law go in that same category or not? Well, it depends whether the state, the Supreme Court has the uh, nerve to try to undermine uh law that has the same constitutional basis as the Supreme Court's own power, meaning the Supreme Court derives its power from basic law, uh, the Supreme Court, and another basic law uh, called, uh, uh, I don't know what it's called in English, it's Quod Adam which means uh, uh, human rights and uh, freedoms, more or less. And um, 
So their right to overturn laws or whatever has to do with uh, basic uh, laws that were passed by the Knesset that, uh, the, that the Supreme Court attributed to them uh, constitutional standing in Israel, which has no constitution. So then they say, our, the core of our power, the source of our power are these laws, and now we're going to overturn one of them. They're essentially saying that there's nothing significant about their own, uh, the laws that empower them. So it's... Um, it would be a risky move on their part. They've made some risky moves in the past because their justices are becoming ever more uh, uh, flamboyant in their uh, in their uh, decisions that they, they they should be ruling by judicial fiat. So it's possible that they do that. But if they do, then they risk uh, serious backlash from the Knesset, particularly uh, if uh, they don't have if, if you're if the because uh, if they do that, basically you're going to have a lot of. Uh, nationalist parties that are running on a uh, platform, a joint platform, to d- deny or to remove the Supreme Court's uh, power to overturn laws, which is a power that was never granted to them by legislation, only by judicial fiat. So if that happens, they could end up seeing their own power uh, uh, diminished, and it, it would be an interesting it would it would be an interesting move on their part. It would certainly bring Israel to to a new uh, level of of. Uh, crisis between the arms of government. Caroline Glick is with us. Speaking of law, can the Prime Minister and his wife survive the legal troubles they're in now? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's any question about that. Uh, Netanyahu, all of the polls show, is going to be re-elected uh, to form the next government. Uh, he he leads all of his possible uh, 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 rivals by over 20 points. Um, so there's really you know, no chance that he's going to be defeated. And there are various ways, uh, legal ways, to prevent him from uh, being uh, uh, put on trial uh, during his tenure as prime minister or even during his tenure as a member of Knesset. So um, I don't think that uh, without passing any any uh, major laws. And so I think that uh, the likelihood of either of them going into jail or being put on trial is probably quite small. Certainly in his case, it's zero. And in her case, it's quite small. Uh, we always look for, you know, effective Hasbara methods and effective Hasbara uh, strategies. Uh, LATMA that mm-hmm. you led during the years that it existed, I thought was one of the most incredible uh, Hasbara um, methods out there. Uh, do you agree? Mm-hmm. And was there any specific reason why uh, it, it just doesn't appear anymore? Yeah, um, I completely agree. And you know, a lot of people, including myself, uh, continue to mourn the loss of LATMA. The reason that I ended up folding the operation after five years is because it was too expensive. And we didn't receive, unlike a lot of these uh, broadcast channels in Israel that, uh, you know, are, are controlled by uh, left-wing activists, um, we didn't receive any government funding. So everything was based on uh, my fundraising. And... Um, you know, it's very difficult, and the fundraising I was doing in the United States, it's very difficult to maintain a program, no matter how effective it is, uh, based on, on private donors um, with no end in sight. So it, it, it ended up becoming uh, increasingly difficult to finance it. And um, so I finally, for financial reasons, had to end it, which is a shame. Um, and there have been... Oh, there's been, in, particularly in the last year, some talk amongst us that maybe we should try to reinstate it in one form or another. And, you know, depending on how things uh, continue on in the future, we may we may not. The thing that I can say is what, what Lotmer's basic rationale was is 
was that we had to end the uh, intellectual and, and social tyranny, really, of the left, where they get to decide what's legitimate, what's illegitimate, uh, who's up, who's down, etc. And uh, we did that by really uh, using satire very effectively. Satire is about uh, slaughtering sacred cows, and the sacred cows in Israel are really the leftist elite. And what I can say is that, you know, we were kind of the pioneers in, in a lot of the new media in Israel. And, um... I'm sorry, you there? Oh, boy. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, there, there are a lot go. of, yeah. there are a lot of, sorry, there are a lot of other organizations and, and websites that have, and voices that have followed in the path that we, that we, uh, that we, um... Uh, paved with LATMA. So I think, you know, it's not as though, I think that a lot of people realize the opportunities of changing the uh, discourse in Israel through various means, and I think that the discourse has fundamentally changed, and I'd like to believe that LATMA played a very key role at the outset in, in moving things forward. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Caroline Glick is with us. Um, you uh, you always rightfully always point out the uh, the troubles that Israel is in, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria, whether it's decisions, uh, many oftentimes bad decisions made by leaders in Israel when it comes to the relationship with other countries, and certainly uh, all that has to be uh, disseminated uh, to the public. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, do you get a certain amount of satisfaction watching world leaders from around the world, uh, from everywhere, from Europe, from Asia, etc., coming to Israel? and uh, gravitating toward Israel and its technology and uh, having Israel and coming to Israel to have Israel fill its needs when it comes to uh, different uh, problems they're having, whether it's with water or their environment and other things. Uh, is, is that, how, how do you view the significance of that happening for this very small country? Well, I think, you know, 70 years of Israel's existence have really seen the transformation not only of the land of Israel and the state of Israel, but also the Jewish people. And the Jewish people with the center of the Jewish people moving from the diaspora uh, to the land of Israel. And um, you see, you know, we, were, we, we came together as an ingathering of exiles. We've been living in separate communities, isolated from one another for nearly 2,000 years. And you see that the the, the 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 sort of synthesis of all of these all of this rich tapestry of Jewish culture from all over the world coming together and forming the most vibrant society on earth. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that among the other things that we're doing is uh, path breaking uh, uh, development and technologies, and whether it's in biotech or in nanotech or in uh, in uh, all of the various uh, high technologies that I don't even understand, <laughs> that are providing new, new, uh, new means to cure diseases, uh, new means to uh, communicate with one another, new means to develop, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, defense mechanisms for this country and systems that we can then share with our allies abroad. I mean, on all of these different levels, you're seeing. Um, advances in in israel and you're also seeing it in non-technological uh endeavors like uh you know in jewish learning and in um and in basic research and in a lot of sciences so i mean i think that uh it's a very exciting time to be jewish it's a very it's it's the most amazing time i think to be jewish in jewish history 
And uh, and that's why, you know, to go back to the beginning of our interview when you said, don't you think people should come to Jerusalem? I mean, I, I don't even think there's any question that the only place that really is worth visiting at this point is Israel, particularly for Jews. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. It's a total miracle. I made Aliyah in 1991, and the transformation of Israel since I made Aliyah has been on every level, and and extraordinary. So I think that, yeah, absolutely, people should be coming here. Can't thank you enough for joining us. I'm curious, did anything about the Kavanaugh hearing surprise you from the United States? You know, I, I find it uh, so uh, disheartening to see um, where the United States is right now as a society, and by the way, where Europe is, and by the way, where the Israeli left is. I mean, you're seeing a meanness, a, a bitterness, a hatred that just uh, coming out on so many different in so many different ways from the political left. It's becoming more and more radicalized, more and more anti-Semitic, more and more anti-American, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-individualism, anti-individual rights, um, and you know all of this ugliness and meanness and all of this sort of embrace of totalitarian ideologies at the expense of liberal democracy. Uh, were brought to the fore in such a profound way with the uh, Kavanaugh uh, hearings, with the entire confirmation process, and of course in the last week with all of the uh, outrageous rape allegations, which were unsubstantiated in any way, including, by the way, blazing forts. Um, so I think, you know, again, this is going back to Israel and why people should want to come here, why people should want to make Aliyah. I mean, I think that... Um, we saw a very bizarre merging of the anti-Semitism of the left, the anti-Americanism, anti-constitutionalism of the left, with Linda Linda Sarsour, an outspoken anti-Semite and Israel hater, anti-Jewish uh, woman who's rising uh, in, in massively being empowered by the Democrats, uh, leading the charge against Kavanaugh. And this is a woman who supports female uh, uh, genital mutilation, uh, in the name of Islam, uh, she's a misogynist on every level, and yet she's being upheld as a, as a feminist, and she's using her position as a as a phony feminist to popularize and spread and propagate anti-Semitism on the American left, and she's doing it uninhibited and un and uh, you know without any uh, obstacles being. Put into her place by people who are supposed to be responsible adults. Indeed, the thing that she's been shown uh, on television the most doing is introducing uh, what she called our woman on the inside, who's working for us on the inside, uh, New York Senator Kristen uh, Gillibrand. I mean, this is a woman who was elected, uh, you know, by by among other people, a large majority of the Jews of New York State, and she has, since she decided she wanted to run in 2020 been embracing BDS, been opposing Israel, been uh, uh, wooing the far left in American politics, uh, which is anti-American, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, um, anti-male, bigoted, uh, and being led by people like Linda Sarsour and Louis Farrakhan. And I think all of this came to a fore in the Kavanaugh hearings and uh it's uh, it's something that American Jews should be fighting, not uh, you know just sort of uh, yawning at. It's a disaster. Total, and, um, totally, totally. And, and I, it's a real source for worry about the future of America. I mean, the fact that Kavanaugh 
48 Democratic senators voted against him based on completely unsubstantiated and uncorroborated allegations regarding an incident that may or may not have occurred 36 years ago. It's frightening. The information and the uh, education you give us is priceless. Continued strength to you. God bless you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of your stay in Israel. Make mm-hmm. Aliyah now. <laughs> what's going on? A total agreement. Thank you so much. The great Caroline Glick here at JM in the AM as we continue here in our three-day adventure. Day two has been amazing. Thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to Steve Leibowitz and, of course, Miriam Alwalek for producing an amazing show. Thank you to Avrami who is correct that he is going to be doing two live lunches from Jerusalem, Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, we're, we're, we're the big shots who are coming here to do our Thursday live lunch. He's doing it every week from Jerusalem. Uh, Yoni, I thank you for your chief engineering, and of course to uh, Steve Leibowitz, to Barry Lieben, to Bobby Brown, to all of our special guests, I thank you. JM Rewind is coming up next. Yehuda Glick's appearance in the JMM studios is part of JM Rewind next. And then at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Avrami takes over during our live lunch. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. There we go. There we go. I knew, I, I knew it would work at some point. <laughs> It's amazing operating this mobile studio the way we do. Uh, that's it. Two days down, one more to go with JM and AM live from the Holy Land. If you missed anything, thank God we have an archive section at AlchemySingle.com and on the NSN app. Check it out now and enjoy. And uh, don't forget to tune in tomorrow morning starting at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. I've Rummy later on today at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with a two-hour live lunch from Israel. My thanks to all of you for tuning in, for helping make this an amazing and incredible show. A uh, big thank you to the Inbal Hotel, to the Lieben family, to the chairman of the Jewish Unity Initiative, Mr. Simon Jacob, and to all the wonderful people tuned in around the world. Let us know how you feel about the show. Comment on the NSN app, the Nachum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.